When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello to all of you wonderful Unshaken Saints out there. I'm Jared Howerson. Welcome back for another week of Scripture Study. And I wanted to give you a quick update before we dive into the Gospels. And the updates have to do with Unshaken, and they all have to do with time and how little of it there is in, in life. Uh, last week, I got a lot of people asking, is everything okay? Uh, have, have, are, are you still around? Are you still alive? Are, are you still posting? Because of the podcast version, the audio version, uh, was late in coming. And I apologize for that. Uh, I, an incredible friend of mine, wonderfully generous, who knows how much I loved my mission, and therefore how Puerto Rican I feel. Uh, knowing that the temple in San Juan, Puerto Rico, was being dedicated just this last Sunday, uh, he, a few months ago, said, you have to go, and I have frequent flyer mileage, so you're going. Uh, and so with his kindness, uh, my wife and I were able to be in Puerto Rico this past weekend for the temple dedication, which was absolutely magnificent. I've never done a Hosanna shout in Spanish before, and it was a thrill. Uh, my wife, who speaks French from her mission, uh, but could understand just enough Spanish to get by Oh, talk about the gift of interpretation of tongues, as she just felt as much a part of the dedication as any of, of us Boricuas uh, that were there. Uh, we, we laughed afterwards thinking, Elder Christofferson, who uh, offered the dedicatory prayer and gave a talk in conjunction with it, he sounded as native as anyone. So uh, what a great Spanish speaker Elder Christofferson is. His old mission president slash companion on the Quorum of the Twelve, uh, Elder Richard G. Scott, would be very proud of how well Elder Christofferson has kept up his Spanish. Uh, but it really was a powerful experience. Uh, th the reason I bring that up, though, uh, is because we were flying to, to Puerto Rico in the midst of trying to finish last week's lesson, uh, and by the skin of our teeth, I had finished it all and stayed up most of the night, you know, to stay up late trying to, to do the video edit and get it ready. But then there was no internet at, at our house. There's been so many snowstorms in Utah that there was no internet. And I thought, I can't upload this thing. What? Ah. And so at the Salt Lake Airport, I was uploading one half of the video. And in the, the, the Dallas airport, I was uploading the, the other half, and I didn't have the software on my laptop to be able to produce the, the podcast audio version. So that's what, that's what explains that. And it had to be till, it wasn't until I got back uh, in the wee hours of the morning uh, a night or two ago that I was finally able to post that. So I hope that John 1 is worth your wait uh, for you podcast listeners, because it, it's an, incre an incredible chapter. I'm just grateful that uh, the uploads for the videos came through just in the nick of time. And it was the nick of time. They were starting to board. Uh, and thankfully, I was one of the, we were one of the last groups to board the plane. And I'm watching the, the percentages tick up, you know, and it's like, okay, it's at 97%. Okay, it's at 98%. And they're like, okay, this board, the last call, I'm like, come on, come on. I felt like I was on Mission Impossible. And something has to upload before uh, the fate of the world is hanging in the balance. And I thought, well, the, the fate of the scriptural studying world, uh, we've got to get this up. And, and it ha I was holding my laptop in line to check my, or, or to scan my boarding pass. 
and it finally hit 100% and closed the laptop and went through and, and all was well. Uh, so anyway, that, that's, that's where I was this past weekend and it was crazy and it was marvelous. Uh, I ran into an old mission buddy that I hadn't seen in, in decades. Uh, just, just a weekend of miracles and tender mercies. Yeah, all revolving around the house of the Lord. Such a blessing. One other thing about time uh, to, to say it by way of update, and it's, again, thanks to some incredible friends that are willing to sacrifice some of their time. Uh, they, uh, an incredible couple with way more talent and artistic power than I'd have, is, uh, asked me, would it be okay? We listen to, to Unshaken every week, and we're taking notes, and we're trying to remember things and, and make it more permanent in our minds and hearts. Would you mind if we shared some of the things that we're working on as we take notes? Can we, can we post them uh, on Instagram so that other Unshaken listeners can have visuals and reminders and shortened versions of these eternal lessons that you teach? Uh, and so they have created a, a, an Instagram account called Unshaken Saints. And there will be, I mean, as long as, long as they want to keep up with it, uh, it's, it's beautiful. Their artistic talent really is breathtaking. And so to see visuals of some of the principles we teach and scripture uh, set to, to pictures and images, uh, things that might help you remember things or printouts or, again, all free, uh, all available to you. Yeah, so if you want to go to Unshaken Saints on Instagram and, and subscribe and like those, yeah, it's another way of getting the gospel out to people. And again, I, uh, my hat's off and my thanks, my gratitude is unbounded to these amaz amazing friends of mine that just out of the goodness of their heart want to help uh, and want to, to make things more accessible and more available. Since for the, <laughs> for the faint of heart, two to three to four to seven hour lessons might be a little daunting. Okay, so these are bite-sized pieces on the Instagram uh, account and those I hope will be a help and a blessing. I, I've been blown away as I looked at them and, th and thought that was better than what came out of my mouth. Uh, so, so check that out if, if you'd like. One last thing about time and it's just my apologies for not having enough of it to respond to all of your comments and your questions as quickly as I'd like. I I've said to many a friend that my heart keeps writing checks that my schedule can't cash and that I can't, I don't have a shovel big enough to work my way through the avalanche of emails that come my way. And so if you're in that, if you like, if you feel like you're buried in the snow as well, waiting for me, uh, I apologize and I pray for your patience and my uh, <laughs> added endurance and energy. Uh, I do try to respond to every email that I get, but I'm sitting on a stack of about 300 right now and uh, haven't had time in probably a year to respond to people who are reaching out on Facebook. And there's so many avenues uh, to be able to remain in communication, which is wonderful, but it is also daunting uh, because my heart is with you. And I wish I had the time to sit down with every person in faith crisis to hear their story and to to try to give them a hope for, or a reason for the hope that is in them. Uh, to try to give them hope too, uh, that they'll find reasons to stay. Uh, I wish, I wish we had the power of a Joshua to command the sun to stand still over the valley of Ajalon. Because there's a battle raging in this valley. And, and we need more time and we need more troops to be able to go out and rescue the wounded, uh, and to win this thing. 
I'm grateful for the chance that I have to spend time with you each week uh, and to spend time with the Lord in Scripture. I just wish there were more time to be able to do it. So thank you for putting up with my constraints. Uh, as we talked about back in Isaiah, when the Lord says that thy walls are continually before me, I just wanted to give you a sense of the walls that are around me. And time-wise, they often feel like they're, they're closing in. Uh, so please know that it's not for lack of interest or lack of desire or lack of compassion uh, if you're still waiting on a response. Uh, it's simply a lack of time. But we have some time right now, and let's use it well. Let's improve upon the time by studying some scripture, shall we? Uh, today we're going to be in Matthew 3 and Luke 3 and Mark 1, and the focal point is the baptism of Jesus. If you only read the Matthew account, which some people, it's the first one in the book, and so it, well, why not start with Matthew, right? And unfortunately, because we often assume that the synoptic gospels are practically identical, close enough, so I've already read Matthew, I, can, I guess I can just kind of skim or skip Mark and Luke and then get on to some other things in John. Uh, don't, don't do that. In the Matthew version of Christ's baptism, it's only 17 verses long. We can kind of whip that out in a, in a, few, a few minutes if we're just skimming over. But to let Mark and Luke and Matthew get together and compare notes and, oh, do you remember this? And like, oh, I forgot about that. And, and from my perspective and, oh, my audience really needs to know this detail, it's amazing. And so as we get into, I mean, today is really where things start to get a little tricky. Uh, as far as our approach to studying these things, where we're going to have to have multiple fingers in our book so that we can flip back and forth with ease and see Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of all coming together. I'm going to try to harmonize things as much as possible as far as timeline and storyline is concerned, but I'm also going to try to honor the differences between the gospel writers so that you can recognize what they're up to and what they're trying to do in weaving particular pieces of this tapestry in such a way that it'll help their chosen audiences, okay? And so, and we, didn't, we haven't had to do that much up, to, up till now. Uh, Luke 1 and Matthew 1 were different enough that we, they're telling different stories. We can keep them separate. Matthew 2 and Luke 2 were, were both Christmas stories, but very different in terms of Matthew only deals with the wise men and Luke only deals with the shepherds, okay? Uh, then we did John 1 last week, and he's doing his own thing, and we only had to do John's thing last week. But now that we are into the ministry of Jesus, and all, at best all four gospel writers, and more often at least the three synoptic gospel writers, uh, they're going to, there's going to be so much overlap. And it's going to be a little tricky because the, the timeline doesn't always match. Uh, we're going to usually try to find one version of it, Matthew, Mark's, or Luke's, that gives us the the richest content, and we'll focus on that one, and then go on frequent field trips to the others as they add detail that the version we're centered on doesn't include, okay? So bear with me, uh, and, and let's, have, let's pray for some dexterity as in our scriptures to be able to flip back and forth. If you're the type that is sitting down with scriptures in front of you marking things, and I love you for doing that. I know you, some of you don't have time for that, and so you're listening on the road or on the run or wherever. That's fine, too. But if you have scriptures ahead, in front of you, you might need to pause a little more often as you turn pages back and forth. As I mentioned, uh, when I taught the Gospels in seminary years ago, I made bookmarks with different colors of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And at the beginning of every lesson, I, we, I told the, les the students, okay, put them in these different pages. And that way, when we flip to Luke, you can literally just flip. And it's just one turn to that bookmark, 
And so that might, if you want to make something similar for yourself, uh, where, where to place them today will be Matthew 3, Mark 1, and Luke 3, the baptism of Jesus. Now, before we, we get, get into the water, if we can borrow that metaphor, uh, can I give you an introduction to the book of Mark? We've already done that with Matthew and Luke, and we did that last week with John. Uh, let me explain a little bit about where Mark is coming from. Tragically, because he's the shortest and the most straightforward and the most used, in a good way, by Matthew and Luke, uh, he's the one that we typically tend to skip over. Uh, Luke, uh, excuse me, Mark is the neglected gospel in many ways, which is tragic. It's the, according to most scholars, it's the first one we have. Uh, it's the basic uh, entry-level understanding of the life of Christ. And as I mentioned in a previous lesson, there is a YouTube video that's amazing where an actor basically memorized the book of Mark and then is acting it out as if he were a first century missionary in some home church where Jews and Christians and Gentiles have come together because they keep hearing rumors and stories about this Jesus of Nazareth and they want to know the full, the full account. And so these missionaries would come in and just tell the story of Jesus, share the good news, the gospel. Uh, I'll put a, a link in the video description so that you can watch that if you'd like. But it's 90 amazing minutes of just feeling mesmerized, just entranced by this fast-moving story. And it moves faster in Mark than any other gospel, uh, telling the good news of Jesus Christ. It really is beautiful, beautiful material. The, the way that Mark does it, though, his approach, it's fast-moving. No wonder it's short. Uh, he cuts to the chase. This is the most dramatic of the Gospels. If, Mark, excuse me, if Matthew is the most organized and if John is the most theological, Mark's is the most dramatic. Because it's just, we're hitting the ground running. And we'll see that in, Matthew, excuse me, in Mark chapter 1. Because there's no backstory. It's just like, okay, I'm chomping at the bit. I've been waiting to tell you the good news. And so it's extra, extra, read all about it. And there's not a whole lot of backstory. It's, it's go time. <laughs> and so he begins where the ministry begins with the baptism of Jesus. That's why we're in Mark 1 today, whereas Matthew and Luke, we're already in chapter 3. We've seen a lot of backstory up to this point. Uh, if you remember the four beasts of Revelation and Ezekiel, Mark's is the lion. And so he will introduce us to the true lion of the tribe of Judah in Jesus. A, his, Christ's regal majesty, but also his willingness to have his mane shorn as he goes to Gethsemane and on to Calvary. We, we see, if, you, if you're a fan of C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, in the book of Mark, we see Lewis's Aslan. We see this lion willing to lay down his life for his friends. Now Eusebius, that early church historian that we met last week when we talked about John, he said something about the writing of the book of Mark as well. He's citing Clement of Alexandria, so this is a, a, a third to fourth century writer quoting a second to third century writer. We're trying to get back as close to the source as we can. But the, the statement from Eusebius is this, when Peter had publicly preached the word at Rome and by the Spirit had proclaimed the gospel, that those present, who were many, exhorted Mark, as one who had followed him for a long time and remembered what had been spoken, to make a record of what was said, and that he did this and distributed the gospel among those that asked him. So here we're seeing the backstory of Mark's story. He's connected to Peter. 
Here it mentions that he had followed him for a long time. Uh, some, some describe him as Peter's personal secretary. Uh, and if he's the one that's taking notes behind the scene, Peter's too busy for that. Uh, and Peter's a fisherman, uh, considered illiterate by some skeptics who meet him in the book of Acts. Uh, he most likely was not. But to see Mark recording the things that Peter has been preaching. Thankfully, we have First and Second Peter that we'll get to near the end of our year. And Peter himself was an incredible preacher of righteousness. But he didn't write down the life of Jesus the way Mark, uh, excuse me, the way Matthew did, the way Luke did, the way John did, some uh, apostolic peers in the, in the place of Matthew and, and John, but to tell the stories every chance he could. We'll see him preaching in the book of Acts. Well, imagine a Mark who is following him everywhere that he can and taking notes, writing down the things that, that Peter has taught. I also love the fact that it's, it's coming at, at audience request. When it speaks of those that were present who were many, exhorting Mark, we got to get a copy of this. Can you please write this down? Especially if this is the first gospel written. There's no Matthew and there's no Luke and there's no John to draw upon. It's just oral tradition. It's notes that people have taken here and there about things they remember about Jesus. But can somebody please compile this? Can you organize it in a way that it's digestible? That it's distributable? that we can begin making copies and flooding the earth with the good news of Jesus. The interesting thing about Mark, he's a little hard to find because that seems to be his last name, not his first name. Most likely, as far as authorship is concerned, that this would be John Mark. He's a missionary companion of Paul. He's also a missionary companion of Barnabas. He's a missionary companion of Peter. Now you can picture the, the apostles kind of fighting over him, like, no, we want Mark this time. We want him to be with us. The Jerusalem church, again, there aren't uh, synagogues belonging to the Jews, so we can't kind of <laughs> claim them as our own. But we'll have these set up these little house churches and come together in someone's home. This church is small, okay, this fledgling group of, uh, of disciples. But we'll crowd into a home somewhere, call it a church. And one of those at Jerusalem was, belonged to Mark's mother. So the small circle of saints in Jerusalem would have known Mark very well. Now, how's this for a few examples? In Acts chapter 12, verse 12, this is right after Peter has been freed from prison miraculously. And when he, Peter, had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John. Now, to this point, you're thinking, wait, is this Mary, Jesus' mother? Is this John, the beloved, how Jesus at the cross told them to treat each other like mother and, and son? No, this is a different Mary. There were a lot. I know that's confusing. And, there's a, and this is a different John. There was more than one, and that's confusing too. He gets more clear, though, when he says, He came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. See this circle of saints gathered in the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, so when you see John Mark, yeah, that is Mark, the gospel writer. Peter, again, his uh, frequent companion, mentions him in his first epistle. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. He writes to kind of the saints gathered generally, wherever they are in the, in the Mediterranean world. He says, the church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you. And if Peter is most likely in Rome in this moment, remember Eusebius talks about he's preaching the word at Rome. That's where Peter would have, would have met his fate. Uh, but he calls it the church that's at Babylon. It's like, yeah, that's how I feel about the empire's capital city. We might as well be in exile in Babylon. We're in enemy territory here. But the church here in Rome, in Babylon, 
elected together with you, saluteth you. But then this added line, and so doth Marcus, my son. It's not just the church assembled here that salutes you. Mark salutes you as well. And to have Peter, the head of the church at this point, the chief apostle, considering Mark slash John Mark, if you want to use his full name, has his own son, oh, my companion in trial and tribulation, my right-hand man, literally, as he's holding the pen in that hand, most likely, uh, to be able to write down the things that I have been preaching. One last example to put Mark in perspective. This is Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Paul writes to Timothy, Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. I love that in that one verse you have a Paul writing to a Timothy, mentioning a Luke and a Mark in the same breath. This is quite the, the, the team. This is the dream team in the early first, in the mid-first century. And so, yeah, uh, Timothy, take Luke, excuse me, Luke's with me. If Mark's with you, can you bring him when you come? And I love the way he says it, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. And as you and I extend our own ministries and try to share with others the good news of Jesus Christ, Mark is such a magnificent place to begin. He is profitable, especially with the drama, uh, the fast movement the, the roaring lion that he presents. So audience, most likely, he's writing from Rome, there with Peter, to Christians wherever they might be. And since it was written probably somewhere between the mid-50s to the late 60s AD, this is a period of persecution throughout the Roman Empire. And so if you are a beleaguered minority, uh, facing lions in the Colosseum, for example, if you are being persecuted for your religious beliefs, we need to know that it's worth it. We need to know that there is a God above us and a Lord that leads us, even if he's leading us into the jaws of death. I guess Jesus went and faced them himself as well. And so to see in the story this regal lion, king of kings, lord of lords, but one who is willing to condescend to face a martyr's death, that's going to be words of encouragement for people who have chosen to follow him, no matter where it might lead. That seems to be Mark's aim. He's encouraging these persecuted saints, take up your cross, whatever it might look like. Follow the example of Jesus wherever he might go. Please be willing to hold on to your discipleship and keep your covenants, no matter what the cost. Some of the characteristics that you'll see in the book of Mark. Keep them in mind if, if possible as we jump back and forth between the, the, the gospel writers. His is the most fast moving, as I said. In fact, he uses the word immediately 42 times in his brief 16 chapter book. Uh, Matthew, by comparison, only uses that word five times. And Luke, only once. <laughs> it, Luke was more, and Matthew were more methodical. And then this happened and that. But no, it is... The, the, the camera is quickly swinging back and forth between scenes and then riveting its focus on Jesus himself. Okay, immediately this, and then immediately that, and it's happening, and we're moving, and it's going. Uh, Mark's gospel is full of vivid descriptions of people and of events. The first half of Mark seems to emphasize Christ's authority. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And then the second half, ironically, 
he's also the suffering servant. He's willing to die. That's why I say he's Aslan. You really see this majestic lion in the first half. And in the second half, it's what's happening to his mane? Why is he being dragged off to this altar and and to be shorn of that majestic dignity? You see in Mark what they call the messianic secret, which is fascinating. We saw last week in John that all these I am statements, that Christ is so bold telling people, this is who I am, and you need to know that. That's not the case in Mark. Especially, again, if there's a sense of a persecuted minority uh, as his audience. Yes, hold on to the faith. But there's a fine line between putting yourself in danger, since martyrdom seems to await us all. Uh, So be wise here. And in Christ's case, it was heal the sick or, or cast out devils and then tell the recipient of your blessing, please don't tell anyone about this yet. It's my time to begin serving has come, but my time to begin suffering has not yet. And so keep this between me and thee, so to speak. In the book of Mark, there is an an interesting portrayal of the disciples of Jesus. It's more negative than the other Gospels. It's as if he's saying, this is what not to do if you're a disciple of Christ. If you're old enough to to have been a missionary in the old uh, pre-preach my gospel days, when you, if you had the old missionary guide, and they explain how to be a missionary, there was a column of less effective and then a column of more effective. So be like the second missionary, not like the first. And in a way, Mark is presenting followers of Jesus in a less effective example kind of light. D- don't do it like they did. Be better. You will see also a lengthy passion narrative and a, an incredibly brief resurrection narrative. He's more focused on what Christ was willing to suffer and go through for our sake than the, the, all the happy ending that you'll see in the other gospel writers. In fact, it's interesting because the ending of the book of Mark, depending on, I mean, there's a lot of early manuscripts that are missing what we see in the last oh, 10 or 11 verses of the book of Mark. According to some of the, the most reliable trans- manuscripts anciently, it's, the book ends in Mark chapter 16, verse 8. Verses 9 through 20 are completely missing in those oldest manuscripts. They're written in a different Greek style. They're using words that Mark himself, or that Mark never used earlier on in his book, which has led scholars to wonder, this doesn't seem to have Mark finger, Mark's fingerprints on it. It's less Markan than the rest of the book. Could it have been added upon by other writers? Uh, other saints, other members of the Christian community that look at Mark chapter 16, verse 8, and think, that's a horrible way to end the story. It's a total cliffhanger, which, if you think about it, is totally like Mark too. We're cutting to the chase with no beginning, no backstory, and, and we're just kind of ending on, a, on a, this moment of, but what's going to happen next without resolving things at the end? That does seem a lot like the character of Mark as a writer. But to, to picture Christians going, I actually remember on my mission going through a Catholic church and seeing the Stations of the Cross. And it ends there on the cross. And I just want to go, but what about the resurrection? Don't, don't stop and leave me here. But in a way, the oldest manuscripts of Mark do just that. This is its ending. We'll study it later when we get, when we get there. But let, at least let me introduce it to you. Mark 16, verse 6 through 8. And he saith unto them, This is the angel there at the empty tomb. Be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. 
Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Period. Mic drop. End of story. It's like, wait, that, that's it? I can't blame any other Christian writer going, but what about? And so they added another 10 or 11 verses that talk about the resurrection and disciples seeing him and him ministering unto them, post-resurrection ministry. And it's like, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the story I expected. And that's what we see in, in Matthew and Luke and John. But again, if Mark himself didn't write it, that last part, then what an amazing ending. And they were afraid. Are you? Are you persecuted Christians afraid? Are you wondering? Are you unsure? Has the story of Jesus come to an abrupt end? As if that were all there is to say. Or are you just willing that there be more writing? This can't be the end of the story. It's hinted at. The angel says, he's not here, he's risen. He's going to go meet you in Galilee. Go, live the gospel, spread the gospel, defend the faith. No matter what the odds, don't be afraid. If that's the cliffhanger ending of the book of Mark, which most likely, historically speaking, it was. Wow. Do you want to read the rest of what he gave, gives us? Do you want to get a sense of his approach? His aim, his, his deep-seated desire to help every disciple of Christ understand his story. No wonder he followed Paul around and Barnabas around and most importantly, Peter around, probably hanging on every word and wanting to make sure that those words weren't lost. Great faith has a short shelf life, President Irene has warned us. There's something powerful about the written word that extends the shelf life of faith. So let's get into this. Let's, let's pull this book off that shelf. Let's open it and begin to see what, what Mark has to tell us about Jesus. His story begins in Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the what? The gospel, the good news but it's just the beginning of the good news. It never ends. In fact, it just keeps getting better. So keep reading. When it says that it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, remember Christos, the Greek for Mashiach, the Hebrew for the anointed one, that's the Messiah. So the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of Kings. And then what else did Mark add? The Son of God. There's the Lord of Lords side of things. If you remember Matthew's version, which begins with genealogy, the focal point was on David and Abraham. So if you're David, then you are an anointed king. If you're Abraham, you're an anointed priest. If you're David, you're king of kings. If you're Abraham, you're lord of lords. In Mark's version, you are Christ and son of God, all coming together. And then Mark immediately shifts to Old Testament scripture. He says, as it is written in the prophets. So you should have seen this good news coming. 
It's been prophesied from the beginning. And he then mentions two specific prophecies that a Jewish audience would have known like the back of their hand. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. There's Malachi chapter 3, right? This Elias figure, the preparer of the way, the messenger. And then Mark goes on, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So without even blinking an eye, and without alerting his audience that he just shifted from one prophet to the next, he's just jumped from Malachi to Isaiah, Malachi 3 to Isaiah 40, weaving together these ancient prophecies about the coming of the preparer of the way, which will then get us ready for the coming of Christ himself. So in a way, Mark is doing what Luke did. You can see in some ways, Matthew see, if Matthew reads Mark's gospel and says, oh yeah, the, the Messiah and the Son of God, let's start with genealogy. Jews need that. And then you see Luke reading Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 1 and, and realizes, oh, written, written in the prophets, a preparer of the way, oh, we've got to start with John the Baptist then. And that's what Luke does in his gospel. We're, we're starting to see the synoptics, synoptics uh, figure out the, their, their individual approaches. And in Mark, it's straight out of the gate. I mean, it is off and running. It is zero to 60 in three verses flat. And Jesus is regal. He is divine. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. So what are we waiting for? Let's begin. In the very next verse, we meet John the Baptist out baptizing, and Jesus is baptized just a, a verse or two after that. We're, we're hauling, okay? But let's pause Mark for just a moment and see where Luke comes in on this story. So flip to Luke 3, verse 1 and 2. And like a good historian, uh, making sure that he checks all the boxes and puts everything in proper context, he begins with this. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. Now, this is not Herod the Great. Remember, he died when Jesus, as a young boy, was there in Egypt and then he returns when it's a little bit safer. But they divided his kingdom into smaller areas for his sons to rule, and this is one of those sons. So th this particular Herod, Herod Jr., we could call him, this is Herod Antipas, he's Tetrarch of Galilee. His brother Philip is Tetrarch of Ituria and of the region of Trachonitis. And Lysanias was the Tetrarch of Abilene. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, among the Jews, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, and it's not normal to have two at the same time, but Annas had kind of been the puppeteer pulling the strings of his son-in-law Caiaphas. So Luke's going to include them both. And meanwhile, with all of this background, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, that's a lot more context than what Mark gives us. Mark is like, oh, who cares what's going on in the rest of the world? <laughs> the world needs to focus on this and only this. Luke, the careful historian, Luke, the Gentile writing to other Gentiles, is bringing in Gentile history. This is what's going on among the Romans. Uh, you outsiders that don't know what's going on among the Jews, here's who their high priests are. So we're getting the context, the situation set. But now back to Mark. Verse 4 and 5, John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. Seems to be a very successful mission by this preparer of the way. 
No wonder he's doing it in the wilderness. Since the wilderness, if you're an Israelite, and every time you think of wilderness, you're about to celebrate the, the Feast of Tabernacles, you're about to, to commemorate the 40 years of wilderness wanderings as they emerge from the bondage of Egypt and are trying to get themselves ready for life in the Promised Land. Wilderness is a time of preparation and purification. Think about Joseph Smith in the Sacred Grove. Think about pioneers crossing the plains. Think about missionaries going to the missionary training center. Think about leaving the wicked world behind and trying to wean yourself off that world so that you're ready to keep the promises in the land of promise. We'll see next week Jesus himself off in the wilderness. Not that he needs any purification, but a period of preparation as he begins, as he's about to begin his mortal ministry. But here we're still in John's ministry, and it's occurring in the wilderness, a preparer of the way to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. There's no better place to do it than wilderness. Why do we take youth on trek to get them out into the wilderness, spiritually speaking, and literally in their case? But notice John's message. He's preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And like I said, he's very successful at it. People are coming out of the woodwork to come and be baptized of him. And they're confessing their sins because that was John's message. Now think about this for a moment. He's preaching the baptism of repentance. And that's how he's preparing the way. The best way we can prepare for the coming of Christ is to repent of our sins. And not just to... Oh, kind of a one-time, a one-and-done, I confessed, I forsook, I'm, I'm done. Those sins are behind me, and, I'll, and they'll never return. Well, really? You achieve perfection on, 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 after round one. I'm impressed. No, this needs to be a lifetime and lifestyle of continual change, of continual turning to the Lord, because the world keeps turning us back to it. It's a tug-of-war, and we're the rope, Okay. But to see the way John is approaching this, preaching the... We call him John the Baptist. Uh, but in some ways, it's John the Repentist. Can, is that even a word we can, we can invent? Because that's the beginning of his message. Yes, I'll baptize you as soon as you're ready for it. But how do you get ready for baptism? By repenting of your sins. This is a baptism of repentance. In a way, it's a baptism into repentance. Now think about the order here. Because when we quote the fourth article of faith and see the doctrine of Christ with its first principles and ordinances being faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, so that fourth, we can receive the gift of the Holy, Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. So it's faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost. And in fact, yeah, the way Amulek says this in the Book of Mormon is he keeps talking about faith unto repentance. And it's a great phrase. Our faith in Christ is what drives us toward repentance. We believe in him. We know that we, that we want to be like him. And we know that we can become like him, but only through his help. So my faith in Christ leads me to repent through Christ. Because I want to become more like him. And it's that repentance that then prepares me for baptism. But what's interesting about this language is baptism, yes, prepares us for the next step. Baptism by water prepares us for baptism by fire. But it's a baptism unto repentance, a baptism of repentance, as John here says. 
So in some ways, baptism loops back on itself by going, by returning to repentance. Almost like, I have a picture of kind of gears, uh, and as I'm cranking the faith gear, it begins to turn the repentance gear. And the repentance gear then starts moving the baptism gear into place. Uh, the baptism gear, though, what's interesting is that, yes, it then engages the Holy Ghost gear, but somehow reinforces the repentance gear and adds some additional power to it. Maybe that's what these gears are trying to produce. And the power to, to deepen our repentance. We see in our baptism an immersion in a lifestyle of repentance, a commitment to a lifetime of continual change, of eternal progression. And so what John is, is teaching here, what he's preaching here, is prepare yourself for Christ by becoming clean and commit yourself. In fact, make a covenant that this life of continuing cleanliness, of perpetual purification, is what you're signing up for. It's what you're covenanting to engage in. This is a baptism of repentance. And they came running which speaks highly of his audience. And since we're here as an audience of his as well, I think, I hope it speaks highly of us as well, that it's resonating with us. And we want to come. We want to confess our sins. We want to repent of them because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We want to make a commitment to continue to do so. That's, it's, it's not apathy. We've overcome that. It's not anxiety. Hopefully we're overcoming that too. It's somewhere in the middle. Because of faith and great anxiety. There's a great contrary from the book of Jacob. And I have just enough anxiety to make me want to repent, but just enough faith to know that I can. That this is my lifestyle. And I'm coming running because I know that Christ has come to fill the gap of my guilt with his grace. Now from there, jump to the Matthew version, and we'll see how Matthew begins his story of the baptism of Christ. Matthew 3, 1 through 3, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Sound a lot like what we just saw in Mark's version? But here Matthew adds, And saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Matthew is quoting Isaiah 40, just like Mark did. Okay? But if you remember, when Mark then proceeds into John's ministry, he speaks of him in the third person and says, This is what John is doing. He's preaching the, the uh, baptism of repentance. Meanwhile, what Matthew does is he hands the microphone straight to John the Baptist and says, what do you want to say? And according to Matthew's account, the first words out of John the Baptist's mouth by way of public ministry is this, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you get a sense of urgency from John the Baptist that it's, it's right here, it's on the way? And we're going to see more and more of that in Matthew's account. Again, he's writing to Jews, you've got to know this the time is now. Your Messiah has come. So no time to waste or wait on this. How do we prepare? We repent of our sins. That's what this is all about. In a way, you see John the Baptist here as a, a new Joshua or a new Caleb. There's Caleb, give me this mountain. 
Here's Joshua. Choose you this day whom you will serve. There's the two faithful spies who outlived all the faithless ones, the fearful ones, and are there chomping at the bit at the banks of the Jordan River. Hmm. Where's John? Exactly there. Are you ready to cross? Are you ready to come? Are you ready to start living the promises of the promised land? Then repent of your sins because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The messianic age is footsteps away and feet are coming. Beautiful feet clad in shoes that I am not worthy to unlatch. Don't you understand what we're doing here? John the Baptist is so, has such a sense and spirit of urgency, and there's no time. We've got to get going. Prepare the way of the Lord. Now, Luke's account of all of this is almost identical to Matthew's, but he quotes more scripture than Matthew does, or that Mark does. Again, if he's writing to Gentiles, they're not going to know the Old Testament like the back of their hand. Matthew can drop a hint can mention the beginning of a verse, and every good boy that raised in, in synagogue is going to be able to then fill in all the other blanks. Luke, let me fill in some of those blanks for you Gentile readers, your, myself. So Luke chapter 3, verse 3 through 6, And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Same phrase as Mark. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, that's Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. That's where Mark ended. That's where Matthew ended. But Luke keeps going. And in fact, he cues Handel's Messiah as we sing, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now that text is Lucan to the core. All flesh, yes, even Gentile flesh, even outsiders are being allowed to come in. That's what these doors of baptism are trying to open for you. Come into the kingdom of God. It is at hand, so repent and be prepared for it. To understand what Luke is doing here, by the way, we keep, whenever we refer to uh, Isaiah 40, I always talk about highway construction where you are leveling mountains and filling in valleys and, and grading out the, the road so that it's straight and that it's smooth. We're trying to make it as easy as possible for the Lord to come. This is highway construction. But from a Luke perspective, right into Gentiles, focusing on the fact that all flesh shall see the salvation of God, I wonder if he's personifying this as well, that if you're a mountain in your own mind, <laughs> then prepare for your pride to be brought down a notch. <laughs> Picture your mountain being leveled. On the other hand, if you are lowly, if you look at yourself as a valley with no lofty peaks to climb, prepare for a savior to come and lift you out of your lowliness. If you are a wanderer taking roundabout paths, Prepare for the Lord to take the crooked and make them straight. And if your life is rough and hard to travel, prepare for Christ to come and smooth out things. Smooth out your own rough edges and make you plain in the best possible way. Back to the Matthew account. What does he say next? 
Verse 4 through 6, And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat, in other words, his food, what did he eat, was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Which brings us back to what Mark had just said. Now, locusts and wild honey, whew, uh, appetizing, wouldn't you say? Actually, when I was a, I think I was, was I a senior or junior? I can't remember. Uh, it was the New Testament year of seminary in high school, and our teacher, Brother French, was hilarious. And we were studying this passage, and I came, I was actually late that day to early morning seminary. I, I must have had a, a hard morning on my paper route, because I was frustrated and just kind of impatient, in a bad mood. And so I kind of stormed into the chapel and sat down there in the high council room at six o'clock in the morning. And there was this cookie sheet in front of everyone that everyone was staring at looking nervous. And I thought, what, Brother French brought some treats? What, what are you nervous about? And they said, it, those are chocolate-covered crickets. I'm like, huh? And they said, yeah, John the Baptist ate locusts and wild honey. So this is Brother French's recipe. Uh, crickets, I guess locusts were hard to come, for, come by there in Southern California. And he sweetened the deal, literally, with a little bit of chocolate covering. And I just remember, I, I, it must have been because I was, again, in a bad mood and just feeling like, ah, who cares? As everyone else was just kind of sitting there like unsure, do I, do I dare to try it? I just grabbed one and popped it in and crunched it up and swallowed it down. Uh, and yeah, crunch is, is true. Uh, the, those crickets were still a bit crunchy. Um, I, the girl in the sitting next to me, I still remember, was disgusted, horrified, like, ah, I can't believe you did that. And I just looked at her, I'm like, what? It's no big deal. And I grabbed another one and popped it in and, and kind of chewed it with my mouth open right, right in front of her. She was so disgusted, I actually had to kind of play a little bit more on this one, play it up more. By now, I was getting to be in a, good, a better mood. This was kind of fun now. And so then I just kind of tried, pretended I was picking something off of my tongue or between my teeth. And then I wiped it on her, on her sleeve and just said, yeah, it's just that sometimes when the legs get caught between your teeth, that's the nasty part. And she's like, ah, just disgusted by it. Now, beyond an amazing object lesson in seminary, a very memorable one, what was John trying to convey? In fact, I don't, I don't know if trying, trying might be too oh, intentional. This is just who John was. Uh, he was raised out in the wilderness, we saw in Luke's account uh, of, of, the, of the early days. And to see what it made of him, this is a rough stone rolling. This is a, a, a stone cut out of the mountains without hands, and it's rolling forth. This is, what do you expect? I live in the wilderness. I was grateful that locusts lived there too. I was grateful for the honey, and of course it was wild because everything was, including myself in a way. If you think about wilderness wanderings, what did the Israelites live on? Oh, whatever the Lord provided. And although he gave the ancient Israelites quail to eat, uh, locusts, is that the insect version? When he offered them manna every morning, remember it tasted a lot like honey? Picture Joshua, picture Caleb, picture Moses, and see in them John the Baptist, trying to wean the Israelites off the world, trying to, they got them out of Egypt, now they're trying to get Egypt out of them. And God will provide everything that we need right here. 
Jesus will draw upon this later as he's speaking to people about John the Baptist. He wasn't looking for the cush life. Uh, he, he wasn't in king's houses wearing princely robes. No, he, he was out in the wilderness looking for the lost. He wasn't in, in the country club of the already saved. He's out beating the bushes for lost lambs. He's out in the, in the wilderness and in the mountains finding the one that was lost. I love John the Baptist, the preparer of the way. We need to become more like him. We need to care a little bit less about how we look. Hey, if it's, why, if it's, if it's leather and camel hair, so be it. In fact, camel hair, can you imagine how itchy that would be? Now, how uncomfortable that would be. But John didn't care. We mentioned Joshua and Caleb and Moses. Add Elijah to the mix. Elijah was a rough-hewn character too. Talking smack out there on top of Mount uh, Carmel as he's uh, having his contest with the priests of Baal. We'll see some of that smack talk with, <laughs> with John the Baptist in just a moment. But to see Elijah living in a period of famine in the land, hoping that the ravens will bring a raven's ration, just enough for him to survive in the wilderness. Are you seeing John as kind of an echo of all these Old Testament figures as we begin to pass from Old Testament to New? He is an Elijah preparing the way for an Elisha, which will do even, who will do even greater things than, than John would. There's so many fascinating parallels here. And it's all about John preparing the way. I am willing to be inconvenienced for this. I am willing to take whatever I can, whatever God is willing to offer. I am willing to put myself in harm's way, out in the wilderness to seek out after the lost. Because that's what preparation entails. It's interesting, when Jesus sends disciples before him at the Last Supper to go prepare for the meal, that's all it was. Make some temporal arrangements, find a, a large upper room. When it's time for the triumphal entry, he sends some, some disciples to go find a donkey that no one's, or, or a colt, the foal of an ass that no person has ever sat on. And that's all it is. It's more temporal preparation. The preparation of John the Baptist, it's not setting up chairs before the meeting. It's not a temporal kind of approach. It's an intensely spiritual one, and it's crying repentance. It's eliminating sin. It's everything that the Aaronic priesthood and its preparatory ordinances are meant to accomplish. That's why John the Baptist is the poster boy of the Aaronic priesthood. He who came to restore it in the latter days. It's John's role to pull the weeds. That's what Aaronic priesthood ordinances do. So that Christ can then come and plant the flowers. That's what Melchizedek priesthood ordinances accomplish. It's amazing to see the personification of these, of these ordinances in these two men, John and Jesus. But in the Mark account, if we go back to chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, we'll see Mark say similar to what we just saw in Matthew, and then go a little further. It's almost a relay race that we're running as each gospel writer takes a few steps and then hands the baton. And they run together and, and overlap their narratives a bit before they go off in other directions. But in Mark 1, 6 through 8, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. 
Okay, so far so similar. And preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. Remember last week in John chapter 1, John's version of the baptism, where we add in the JST of that passage, John saying, Whose shoes I am not worthy to fill? I, I can't even shine his shoes, let alone fill them. Okay? But he goes on, I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Now, John here is confessing his own unworthiness before Christ, which in a way is setting the example for his followers to follow. I'm not worthy of Jesus. Neither are you. <laughs> I'm trying to prepare myself for his coming. I'm trying to prepare you as well. And if we are humble enough to stoop down even though we don't feel worthy to even, even to be that high compared to him. Remember, this is not dig the pit. This is raise the pedestal. And Jesus is on one that is as high as I can see. So be ready for his coming. Repent and prepare. Now, in that Mark version, the very next verse, he skips ahead to the baptism of Jesus. We are fast forwarding, we're fast moving through the Gospels, cut to the chase. Let's talk about Jesus, can we? Forget John the Baptist. He was only here for a moment and then we're on. But Matthew and Luke have so much more to say right here. So here, thank you, Mark. Hold on. I, I know you're chomping at the bit, but mm, patience is a virtue. Let's swing over to Matthew and on to Luke and see more of the message of this messenger preparing the way for Jesus Christ. So Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who? These are not gentle reassurances. These are not sugar-coated calls to repent. This is strong language. This is throwing it down. This is Elijah with the priests of Baal. How long halt ye between two opinions? This is, this is John the Baptist preparing the way in all his rough-hewn wonder. What's coming? The day of wrath? The wrath to come? Remember his first words. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven, it's at hand. It's right here. The wrath is coming. Judgment day. And you've got to be prepared for it. We cannot procrastinate the day of our repentance. And then to call them a generation of vipers? Whew, what, what does he mean by that? Vipers, poisonous serpents, but a generation of them. Now think about a generation in terms of you know, Gen X or Gen Z or the greatest generation. It's the whole people. And so a generation of vipers, have they become a poisonous people? Has it become a serpent-like society with cultural cockatrices slithering in among the unsuspecting, ready to latch their fangs into people that are not prepared? Paul said that in the latter days, perilous times would come, and these are perilous, poisonous serpents. And it's a whole generation of them. It's the fish that doesn't know it's in water because that's all it knows. It's us unaware of the kind of cultural currents that are sweeping us downstream. Well, good thing we're at the Jordan River. 
where God stops current from flowing. There's no flowing, going with the flow at the Jordan River. Because remember in the days of Joshua, God stops it. He dams the river. And that's what John is trying to do, to stop people in their downward flow toward destruction. Of all places, Jordan is where we turn things upstream. It's where we swim against the currents. Jordan is where we decide to do just that. And that's what John is calling them out to do. How much of what we're up against is our own culture as we are growing and trying to raise our children in a, amidst a generation of vipers? It's, it's a scary world. It's a fallen world. How about the serpent slithering through the Garden of Eden? And as we try to grapple with the results of the fall here in this generation of vipers, are we fleeing the wrath to come or falling prey to it? When Isaiah said that the days would come where they call good evil and evil good, that's a generation of vipers. Vipers throughout the whole generation until society itself becomes blind to its own sinfulness. Because it's not sinfulness at all. What do you mean I need to go down to the Jordan River and repent of my sins and be baptized in water <laughs> for the remission of sin. What sins? It's all good. It's all fine. Oh, it's fascinating to see what John is trying to call them away from. And in fact, one other way to take this, this generation of vipers, I'm shocked that this never crossed my mind. I've been studying this for 40 years and it wasn't until this time in preparation for this lesson that it dawned on me if John is our Joshua 2.0, or our Caleb 2.0, our, our, our leader through the wilderness wanderings, if he's trying to get us to the, to the Jordan River so that then we can cross it and actually enter a land of promises and, and actually be able to keep them, who does this sound like? Especially as he calls out the vipers that are all around him. And all of a sudden the light bulb came on. And I thought of the fiery flying serpents that, that were there in the wilderness as Israel was trying to get out of Egypt and get to their promised land. We've said this before. It was easy to get Israel out of Egypt. It was harder to get Egypt out of Israel. And part of this process of purification and preparation in their wilderness, before they got to the Jordan and were able to cross those waters, is that they were attacked by fiery flying serpents. And as they were perishing among this generation of vipers, what did Moses do? He made a brazen serpent and invited the people to look and live. That's what John the Baptist is doing. Free yourselves from these cultural fiery flying ser serpents because a second Moses is on his way. And a true brazen serpent will be raised on a cross. Please look and live. Now he specifically calls out Pharisees and Sadducees in the Matthew version. And that makes sense because he's a Jew writing to Jews and they know exactly who these two groups of people are. And they're often singled out for condemnation in the Gospels. It's interesting because Luke's version of this isn't so specific. Why would he need to be? He's a Gentile writing to Gentiles. Will they even know the difference between a Sadducee and a Pharisee? Will they even care? And so the way Luke puts this on paper 
the message about fleeing the wrath to come is not just to Pharisees and Sadducees. It's to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him. Interesting. So it's just, it's the multitude. It's everybody. And that's Luke's audience. The entire world. Which suggests that we are all part of this generation of vipers. Maybe we're not the viper ourselves, but maybe that's another form of generation. Not just horizontal like the entire age, but more vertical like what's being passed down to the next generation. Or what is one generation generating for the next? How are we leaving the world for our posterity? And will they end up being what's been generated by our, by our age? Or will we be able to raise them better? Will we be able to raise a countercultural generation so that they're not generated by the vipers all around us? Pharisees, Sadducees, all of us, even the multitudes that are coming to be baptized, wouldn't those be the good people? They're coming to change. They've recognized their sins. But is there a piece of Pharisaism and Sadduceeism in all of us among the multitude that's actually coming when invited to try to repent and be baptized. It's interesting if we just take a moment and tease out some nuance between these two groups. The Sadducees were in charge of the temple, but the temples where sacrifices are offered for, the, for sin. Atonement is being made. It's kind of the easy way, isn't it? Oh, just put it on that animal's tab and we're good to go. At least that's how Sherem taught it in the Book of Mormon. That's how the priests of Noah taught it in their day. It's, we can eat, drink, and be merry because we're, we're making these token offerings. When John the Baptist is like, no, 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 the offering better be a broken heart and a contrite spirit. It better be real repentance here. Is there a part of Sadduceeism in us that it's, ah, we've got the temple, we have the ordinances, we've got the gospel, I'm good enough, I don't really need to repent. Or the flip side, what about the Pharisees? Because the Pharisees were so strict in their observance of the law. They had laws to guard the laws, right? And, and how many steps are you taking on the Sabbath? I know you can't do that. This, does that sound a little like the toxic perfectionism that many people struggle with in our day? Is that the Pharisaism that has entered into us that also makes it difficult to repent because we don't think we have anything to repent of. It's this demanding perfection of ourselves and almost attaining it, but just working harder and working harder until we do, instead of humbling ourselves, coming down to the Jordan River and admitting that we need help. Between the Pharisees and Sadducees that Matthew mentions and the entire multitude that Luke has in mind, can we see ourselves in this generation of vipers? It's not all our fault. Vipers before us have generated some of the mess that we're in. But can we stop it? Can we change? Can we change culture and society? Can we change the world so that when Christ comes, the world will be ready for him? That's what John the Baptist is trying to accomplish. And if we, John the Baptist's all, are going to be able to remain free of the sins of this generation of vipers. If we can be cleansed of its blood and free of its sins, it will come because we've come unto Christ. 
it's, it will come because we've recognized our weakness and lowered ourselves, come out of those princely palaces in Jerusalem. That's where the, the Pharisees and Sadducees are. Picture John in his camel hair and leather, looking at them, the embodiment of apostate Israel, and thinking, oh, who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You vipers, coming down. Oh, I hope that you haven't gotten any dirt from the wilderness on your princely robes. They certainly don't look like they're ready to get wet in the waters of baptism. This is such a powerful moment when you tease out all the possibilities of what John is, is conveying here. And then in the midst of it all, after having called them out about this wrath, he then says that we're back in the Matthew version, chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. Luke says it, fruits worthy of repentance. Same idea, I believe. Some evidence, some fruit that this tree is alive and growing. It's wanting to progress. So bring forth fruit. The type that shows that you're repenting. Make your repentance visible and tangible. And then come down into the waters of baptism, which is a visible, tangible, corporeal, bodily performance and action a verb. We're doing something here to show that we're changing. So bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, Matthew says, Luke is even better, begin not to say within yourselves. Because what John the Baptist is about to call them out on, whether they're already saying it and long have been, or whether they're just starting to the way Luke describes. Don't let this cross your mind. Don't, let, don't start going down this path. And what is this path? The type of mentality that has you say, we have Abraham to our father. In other words, we're good. We're the house of Israel. We're the chosen seed. God made promises to Abraham, and Abraham kept them, so I guess we don't have to, since we just kind of come into the inheritance automatically. No, don't say that within yourself. You might be wise enough not to say it out loud because that's going to sound pretty obvious that now you're missing the point here. So don't say it in yourself. And Luke's, don't even start thinking that way. Don't pretend that just because you're a card-carrying member of the house of Israel, that you're posterity of the promise. No, you've got to keep the promises yourself. Because, as John then says, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And that's the exact same language that Luke uses. You see, we can't have some false sense of security or false sense of entitlement that just because I'm part of God's true church, then, then I truly belong in it. No, are we bringing forth fruits meet for repentance? Well, I'm on the tree. Isn't that enough? No, where's your fruit? Because as the allegory of the olive tree lets us know, just because you're part of the tree, God will not hesitate to cut you off and plant you elsewhere if there's a potential there of helping you bring forth real fruit, fruit, meat for repentance. So please don't let entitlement get in the way of your repentance. Don't let mere membership keep you from true discipleship. Don't let your default spiritual birth as children of God get in the way of your true rebirth 
by choice and in the exercise of agency. Remember that was the line from John chapter 1? That thus they can become the children of God? Again, by choice, not just by the consequence of birth. You see, John gets it that it's not about lineage, it's about lifestyle. It's not about ancestry, it's about attributes. If you're going to be the seed of Abraham, then act like Abraham. Become a true member of the family with all of the family name and family resemblance, the family business of gathering Israel that we're supposed to be a part of. Those are fruits meet for repentance. That is proof that you're part of the family, the family of faith. So in a way, I see John saying, look around you. If we're here at the banks of the river, there's probably some stones there uh, in, in, on, the, on the ground. So pick one up. And rather than skip stones across the river, make sure that the promises of God aren't skipping a generation in you. Because from those very rocks, God could raise up children to Abraham. If Abraham was to have seed like the sands of the sea, picture every grain, a godly grain, from that God can bring, from the Gentiles, he could bring a seed unto Abraham. He could adopt them in, which we'll see so much in the letters of Paul. So don't be a worldly rock. <laughs> be a celestial stone. Be one that God cuts out of the mountain without hands. Be one that rolls forth and begins to fill the earth. Be godly gravel. And bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. Then and only then will you be prepared for the baptism that I am bringing your way. Well, John then gives another oh, re-emphasis of that spirit of urgency. He said it about, our, who's warned you to flee the wrath to come? Well, let's talk a little bit more about that, shall we? Matthew 3, verse 10. Now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit. And what kind of fruit had he just mentioned? Fruit, meat for repentance. So if that's not the type of fruit that you're producing, then get ready. If you're not bringing forth good fruit, it is hewn down and cast into the fire. Luke's language is identical there. So that's the wrath to come. And it's getting closer and closer. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. Which means it won't take much time for God to grab the handle and start to swing. If I was told to go chop down a tree, it would take me a while. The tree would have some time to shape up. Because my garage is a mess. And to go find... I'm amazed at those people that have like the, the, the board on the wall with all the hooks. And all the tools are hung there neatly. I think Elder Bednar said his dad was like that. I mean, those well-prepared pruners, <laughs> those ready lumberjacks. Oh, it's time, it's time to cut down the tree? I know exactly where my axe is. It'll only take me a second to grab it. Well, this is even faster, even more urgent. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. No need to rummage around for anything. We're ready to go. Are we ready to repent? In Matthew's version, then, he goes straight on with John's message. That someone mightier than he is on his way. But Luke doesn't go straight there. In Luke's version, John's message, his cries to repent, are interrupted by the people. 
uh, it's interesting to see, again, this is where I'm really grateful for Luke. He's like, wait, 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 before we go on with John, how are people hearing the message? He's calling them to come. Will they? Or what's holding them back? And Luke wanting to kind of tease that out to help us really understand where we are in this among the multitude that's come to the baptism. Oh, he doesn't want to get us, let us off the hook. Like, I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not a Sadducee. This, is, this has nothing to do with me. Okay, let's introduce a few more people and let them interrupt the Baptist's message to see where they fit in it. This is Luke chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? Which is actually a beautiful question. It's a recognition of their own sinfulness. They're wondering how to avoid condemnation. If you remember in the book of Acts, we'll study this later, Peter calls out the people in language about as strong as John's. And the people respond. This is after the crucifixion of Jesus. And he calls them out for being participants in that that rejection of the Savior. And they realize what they've done. And humbly and vulnerably, they ask Peter and the other apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What can we possibly do based on, is it too late for us? Have we, have we blown it permanently? And Peter's response to them is just like John's here. What shall ye do? Repent and be baptized. Start over. Wipe the slate clean. It's not too late for you, no matter what you've done. Just repent and bring forth the fruits of repentance, which is a commitment to live into a lifestyle of repentance for the rest of the life you've got. Will you come? Will you do that? And so here the people are asking similar questions. What can we do? What, how can we change for the better? And this is John's response. He answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats... Let him impart to him that hath none. He that hath meat, let him do likewise. Jesus himself is going to say some similar things in the Sermon on the Mount. Is he learning some of these? Just not learning. It's not new to him, but the ways to put it. Oh, I like the way John said that. I'll teach something similar. This is horizontal righteousness. This is love of neighbor, the second great commandment. If you have more than enough, then give, share. That's part of repentance from a sin of omission, let alone repentance from sins of commission, but reaching out to those around you. This, by the way, is so Lucan. <laughs> be, be aware of the, the needy, the lowly, the lost. Share, invite, feed, bless, help. That's part of John's call to repent. He then turns to another audience. In chapter 3 of Luke, verse 12 and 13, Then came also publicans to be baptized. And a publican is a tax collector. They work for Rome. Even though most they're not Romans, they're Jews, but they're working against the Jews. No wonder everybody hates publicans, except, except the Romans that are relying upon them. But to think of these people who probably hate their own job themselves. I'm, I'm in a horrible position. I'm working against my own people, but... I'm under the Roman's thumb, and if I don't do it, someone else is going to. It's eat or be eaten, and so I might as well side with the people in charge, and maybe I'll come out on the winning team. This is a tough place to be, and so they come 
to be baptized. Are they recognizing their own sins or sinfulness? Are they wanting to change, wishing things were different? Well, what should they do? That's their question. They came to John and said to him, Master, what shall we do? We've been following the wrong masters all this time, Roman taskmasters, but you, a true master, what can we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. Talk about speaking to their situation. You're tax collectors. You exact taxes out of people. No wonder they hate you. But I wonder, do they hate you because of what you're doing or because of how you're doing it or who you're doing it for? Think of it in, in those terms. You see, later, Jesus himself will say, Render unto Caesar that which belongeth to Caesar. And it was a tax-based question. Should we have to do this? Jesus is recognizing, we're still under the Roman thumb. And yes, I'm the Messiah, but not the kind you're expecting. Not a military one. I'm here to free you from sin, not from, not from Rome. And so, we still have to render unto Caesar what belongs to him. And that will call for publicans. But you publicans... Don't use Rome as an excuse for acting Roman. Or to put it in our terms, don't use the world as an excuse for your worldliness. Because, hey, I have to collect taxes. So if I skim a little off the top, they're probably not even going to know. Are you using Rome as a justification for your own greed? I think is what John is getting at. And, and even if you have to do a job that you don't particularly want to, don't let the job start working on you, okay? Don't allow it to, to convince you that you, can, that you can become dishonest and lose your integrity just because I'm working in the world and that's how the world does things. No, we are countercultural. We're swimming upstream. We're different here. That's what John is asking of them. So please be honest and do not exact more than what is appointed you. Now with that, we get even further into the Roman world because verse 14 of Luke 3, the soldiers likewise demanded of him. So now we got Roman soldiers, not just Jews working for Rome, but Romans working for Rome. And they demand of him. Isn't that interesting? They're not asking humbly like the others probably did. They're used to giving commands. They're used to receiving orders and, and carrying them out. So now they're giving some to John. They demand of him saying, and what shall we do? What about us? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. That's an interesting one too. Don't use your position as an excuse for unrighteous dominion or giving in to the natural man. If the publicans have to collect taxes, we'll do that and no more. If you soldiers are responsible for keeping the peace, then please try to be at peace yourself with the people. Don't do violence. Lately, we've, there's been a lot of controversy about police brutality. And I feel for the police that are put in really difficult circumstances and dealing with, with people that I'd be afraid to deal with. But what's interesting is, talk about power that has to be controlled. Talk about the danger Joseph 
Smith learns about in section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that as soon as you get a little authority, as you suppose, people tend towards unrighteous dominion. It goes to their head. And I can not just exact justice, I can go beyond it. I'm not just trying to honor the law. I'm sadly falling prey to the natural man that just wants to take out some of my own anger or frustration. And I'm in the perfect place to do it because I'm a cop or I'm a military man. I'm a soldier. And rather than just fighting the enemy, I can hate the enemy that I'm fighting. Compare that to Captain Moroni in the Book of Mormon, who could stop a battle at the drop of a hat if it seemed like the enemy was willing to surrender. Sounds like he was, a fight, he was fighting an enemy that had never really become an enemy in his heart. That's amazing he could do that. And that's what John is asking of these soldiers. Don't do violence, even though you are in a violent profession. Or they don't accuse any falsely. If you are kind of the police force in ancient Israel, that could go to your head too. And when the, the representatives of the law feel that they are above the law, then they'll tend to break the law because who's going to call me out on it? <laughs> no one. So there's a caution there too. Do not misuse your authority by accusing others falsely. And if accusing people falsely is being too harsh, I wonder if there's an opposite extreme of being too lenient, at least with the people that can pay for your leniency. That's why I wonder when he gets at what he's getting at with be content with your wages. You see, you're being paid by the Romans to keep the peace. But if there are other people preying upon the poor, for example, and the poor can't demand redress from you if you don't care to, to offer it to them, and if the guilty can bribe you to turn a blind eye, then the poor truly are at, at the mercy of everyone. And there's not much mercy here. There's no hope for them. There's no justice for them. Because not only are you being unjust to the innocent, you're being overly merciful to the guilty. You see, the bad guys can always afford to pay you more than the good guys can. And so to these Roman soldiers that are supposed to be defending the defenseless, I hope you're content with your wages for doing so. Otherwise, you'll probably get bribed into going against the position and power and authority and responsibility that is yours. Those are all things for us to be aware of. What's amazing to me, though, about what Luke is giving us from John is that in every case, John is meeting people exactly where they are. And he's covering the entire spectrum. If you have the multitudes coming, it's going to be a mixed multitude, and we've got Jews on one extreme, we've got Romans on the other, and then somewhere in between, we've got the publicans. We have Pharisees and Sadducees. We have Roman soldiers. We have people that are eh, caught between the two, exacting taxes. Better not, better not exact anything extra. I, I just love the fact that John... What do you need? This is a very specific cry to repentance. Not just, ah, you've all got sins, so repent of them. But when people come forward, this is where a bishop can really come in handy. 
uh, a representative of the Aaronic priesthood in the ward, a, a modern, local John the Baptist, and to go to him and admit, I've done some things wrong in my life, and I don't know exactly how to fix it. So what shall we do? And for a bishop to understand exactly where they're coming from. Well, are you a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a publican or a, a Roman soldier? Where are you coming from? Where have you been? And then let's decide where you, we can go from there. And to be that specific, that clear, that compassionate. That's what John is doing. That's what bishops do all the time. But I also love the fact that he stays within their basic political circumstance. He doesn't tell the publicans, forget Rome and be Robin Hood and take all that money you've collected and turn it right back and give to the poor. In fact, if you have your hands in the Roman coffers, instead of adding to them, take from them. And let's overthrow those money changers, shall we? To the Roman soldiers, it's, well, you got a sword, use it, but stop using it on us, use it on them. It's interesting what revolutionary doctrine John is teaching, but he wasn't a revolutionary, at least not politically. He was spiritually, but there was still a sense of render unto Caesar, which to me is really fascinating. He's going to speak truth to power. We'll see that later, and it'll cost him his life. He's going to call out sin wherever it is, from the Jewish end of the spectrum to the Roman end of the spectrum. But what's interesting is that he wasn't an activist, if we use that term in the way the world uses it now. Instead, <laughs> what was he? Not an activist politically, but an advocate religiously for the doctrine of Christ. He taught faith in Christ. He preached repentance of sin. He offered baptism by immersion for the remission of sin. And he promised that one would come after him that would baptize with fire and the Holy Ghost. John, his approach was simple. It was patient. It was bold, but it was, it was trusting in the doctrine of Christ. Recently, uh, Brother Ahmad Corbett, who's in the Young Men's General Presidency right now, amazing man. I got to meet him recently, and he's just incredible. He spoke at a conference of chaplains in the church. And I spoke at it too, but his talk was way better than mine. And what Brother Corbett talked about, you can see this online, is about activism. And so here's chaplains, whether in the military or in, in, in prisons in, in hospice, or in hospitals. There's so many different kinds of chaplaincies out there, but they're engaged in the world. And they have to be able to handle the world that's out there. And they're trying to change it, but they're trying to change it from within, with the doctrine of Christ. And what Brother Corbett taught, which I thought was so, just so illuminating, so inspiring, so insightful, was the world's way of making societal change is through activism. And you kind of get angry, you're up in arms, and you're picketing, or you're protesting, and you're... And sometimes that's the only thing that will get the government's attention or something that will bend the public ear. I'm not saying there's no place for that. But what Brother Corbett mentioned was in the church, 
Unfortunately, there seems to be a certain degree of activism that the brethren have this wrong, or prophets aren't seeing things clearly, and so we are pushing and protesting and making some demands, kind of like these Roman soldiers did, demanding John to, to, what about us? What are we supposed to do? But making demands of prophets and apostles, seers and revelators, saying, you seers don't see things as clearly as we do, so let us reveal to you what you ought to be doing. And we're activists when what Brother Corbett said is we need to trust the doctrine of Christ instead. We need to trust that faith unto repentance and repentance leading to a baptism of repentance that keeps us engaged in that process of continual change. Guidance of the Holy Ghost because we're worthy of it and the Spirit will not just tell us where to go but how to get there and how fast to, 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 to push in that direction? How hard should we push, I should, I should say? You understand what I'm getting at here? Uh, Brother Corbett nailed it. Such a good talk worth, worth studying. And I see John the Baptist living this beautifully. He was not some kind of general in the culture war. He was not a zealot like you might expect. His allegiance was to the kingdom of God that he knew was fast approaching. And he was teaching faith and repentance and baptism to prepare the way. So if we're looking for change, may we trust the Lord's way of doing it. The world wants activists. The Lord wants disciples. As President Benson used to say, the world works from the outside in. The Lord works from the inside out. It takes longer. But slow and steady actually wins the race. It allows people to change themselves instead of us trying to force change upon them. So may we be patient and do less damage in pursuit of our goals. The next few verses then in Luke chapter 3, we're now in verse 15 and 16. They say, as the people were in expectation... Again, there's the anticipation that's on everybody's mind. This is the preparer of the way, as they are in expectation. And all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. Now, right then, we can cue the Gospel of John's account that we read, studied last week in John chapter 1. This whole conversation, are you the Messiah? No. Well, are you Elias? Uh, yes and no. Uh, are you that prophet? No, 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 not that prophet. Other prophets will come. I'm an Elias to prepare. There will yet be an Elias to restore. And I'm certainly not the Messiah. But he's on his way. So prepare for it. So that's what's happening. That's, we get the full account of that, that conversation in John. But here Luke is hinting at it. They're musing in their hearts of John. Is he the Messiah or not? I don't know. Because we're all in anticipation. We're all in expectation. But what does John do? John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Which is what Mark told us much more quickly. What Matthew told us much more quickly. I'm so grateful for Luke's roundabout to Christ's specific repentance to specific people all along the way. So that every kind of person, from whatever circumstance, can understand the gospel is meant for me individually. And even from my nook and cranny of worldly wickedness, there is a path that leads me home. We have to help them find it. And they'll find it in Christ. 
That's what John is getting at. It's not me. It's him. So don't look at me like I'm some Messiah figure. I'm not. I'm just his lead blocker. Don't muse in your heart. That's what I love about John when he said, he answered. Like they hadn't even asked. There were some specific questions, what should we do about repentance? But they hadn't yet, at least in the Luke version, hadn't yet actually asked him, are you the Christ? It just says they're just musing in their hearts. What do you think? I mean, it can't get any better than this, right? Look at what he's doing. He's calling out this generation of vipers. He's going to change it. Nice. Mm, don't go there. Someone more important than me is on his way. Now along those lines, come back to Matthew with me. And Matthew's version says basically the same thing, but there's a reiteration of repentance in the midst. Matthew 3, verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. You see, the Luke version was just, I baptize you with water. No, Matthew's is the full version. Water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, same language, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, Q John, his, whose shoes I'm not worthy to fill, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So water unto repentance, there's justification. Fire unto refinement, there's sanctification. There's Aaronic and Melchizedek. We're tag teaming. <laughs> we each have our responsibility. And I'll pull the weeds, Jesus will plant the flowers. I bring water, he comes with fire. Verse 12 then, speaking of fire whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There's a beautiful harvest metaphor. We saw a harvest of sorts with the axe laid at the root of the tree. He's ready to pick it up and start chopping because this tree isn't bringing forth fruit, meat for repentance. Well, what if we're talking about grain now? And we'll go out into the fields of grain and we'll begin to harvest them. We've got to first separate wheat from, from tares, okay? Because the tares aren't going to do us any good. So gather out the wheat and bring it in. Bring it into the garner, but not quite yet. We've got to pass through the threshing floor first. So harvest time, we'll cut down the wheat or separate it from the tares. Gather the wheat into the threshing floor. There's no tares here, hopefully, if we did our job, but there's still a lot of chaff mixed in because in you don't eat the whole stock okay what you have to do is separate wheat the kernel from the chaff you already separated wheat from tares out in the field here on the threshing floor let's get even more fine-tuned and separate kernel from chaff and to do that we beat it down on that we thresh it we thrash it we could even say on this threshing floor and then we winnow it and what we do with that is we have these winnowing forks and we throw it up in the air and the wind will blow the chaff away because it's lighter. There's no substance to it. It's neglected the weightier matters of the law. So the kernels that weigh more fall back down to the ground of the threshing floor and they can be gathered up and stored in the garner to be used whenever you need it to go, make, to go bake the bread of life. Now, amazing metaphor that John is drawing upon. And his audience would have understood it perfectly because that's the world they live in. Let's change, shall we? Let's first remove ourselves from this generation of vipers and change. That's gathering out the wheat from the midst of the tares. Let's come to a threshing floor. And John's doing some threshing right there. 
Remember where David, King David, built the temple was on a threshing floor. You come out of the wicked world, you're coming into the kingdom of God, but there's still some cleanup to do. There's still some further purification and preparation. We're not quite across the Jordan yet. It's, it's kind of wide, okay? But as we're coming, let's continue to change, and we'll go through the refiner's fire. We will separate out the, the weakest parts of us as we come into Christ and become more like him. We'll be threshed and thrashed until I don't want to have anything to do with the, the wicked world anymore. I'm not going to exact more than is required. I'm not going to do violence, even though I have a violent kind of job. I'm not going to, I'm going to be content with what the world has allotted me and what the Lord has allotted. I'll be content with my wages. I just don't want any of the wages of sin. And now that I'm good grain, now that I've separated out, I see it more clearly. Why was I holding on to that chaff? Let it go. And how do I get rid of it? The Lord sends his wind. And remember, wind in Hebrew is breath. And breath in Hebrew is spirit. It's all the same thing. So God breathes upon you through the power of the Spirit of God. That's Jesus coming with his baptism by fire and by the Holy Ghost. And through that wind, as the Lord blows through you, and the Spirit helps you distinguish between what to hold on to and what to get rid of, then the wind blows away the lighter stuff. Helps us hold on to the weightier matters. And all I have left is good grain to be gathered into the garner of God, which is another great temple metaphor as well. So beautiful, all these strands of symbolism being woven together. But what happens if there's no wind? I'm speaking literally here. There's always the breath of God. There's always the Spirit of God. But if you're literally winnowing on your threshing floor, and you're throwing up all of, you know, with your winnowing fork, and it all comes up, and then it all comes back down. And maybe you can see it for an instant that the heavy stuff is falling first, but then the chaff settles right back down on top of it, and you're like, ah, this is doing no good. That's why often they would be on higher places, like where the temple mount was. Okay? That threshing floor was high, because wind usually passes better on high elevation. But if there's no wind to blow away the chaff, then you get some other fellow servant to get a fan and begin to fan it. Fan it. This is man-made wind. And guess where the fan is, according to John? Whose fan is in his hand. He's trying to clean up. He's trying to harvest. Okay? He's trying to gather out the good grain. He's going to thoroughly purge the floor so he can gather out his wheat, put it into the garner. What's left of the chaff? Burn it. Even if it doesn't blow away. Right here, if that's all that's left, we can just light the threshing floor on fire and it'll burn away that chaff with unquenchable fire. There's no way to avoid it. The fire is kindling already. He's coming to baptize you with fire and it will either cleanse you or consume you based on how prepared you are for it. What's the breath going to do? Inspire you? Same language, inspire, spirit, breath. Or will it blow you away, away from the threshing floor. The fan is in his hand. He's ready to go. This is the flip side, or not flip side, this is the, the echo of what he just said about the axe. Where's the axe? It's right by the root of the tree. Pick it up and swing. Where's the fan? It's in my hand. Can you start winnowing already? I'm ready to blow. Do you sense John's urgency all over again? 
who warned you to flee the wrath to come. Repent ye, the kingdom of God is at hand. And in that hand is this fan, and it's beginning to blow all around us. Can you feel it? The wind whipping around in every direction? Are we prepared to have it blow away the things that don't matter in our lives so we can hold on to the good grain? That's what God wants to do because that's what he wants us to be. Notice, by the way, these beautiful possessive pronouns that, that John uses here. The fan is in his hand. It's his hand. He's doing this directly. Okay? The Lord is a part of this. He will thoroughly purge his floor. See how engaged God is, the Lord is in all of this. He'll gather his wheat into the garner. Luke's version actually says his garner. So adding in another possessive pronoun there. It all belongs to him. He wants to claim it with one exception. He speaks of his floor and his wheat and his garner, but he also speaks of the chaff. I don't claim that. That's not my chaff. I can't claim it because it wouldn't claim me. I will be their God and they shall be my people. We saw that so often in the Old Testament last year. Will we be part of the Lord's possessive pronouns? I hope so. Well, the Luke version of all of this was almost identical, but he does add one little detail in Luke chapter 3, verse 18. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. Oh, Luke, did you have to say that? Did you have to admit that you have been highly selective in your editing? This is like Mormon in the Book of Mormon who keeps complaining, man, I can't even include the 100th part. And I'm like, seriously, this is 1% of what you had? Man, why'd you have to be so stingy with Scripture? I want the other 99%. I really want that with John the Baptist. Because if he's calling out specifically things to Pharisees and Sadducees and publicans and Roman soldiers... Imagine what he'd say to a religion professor. To say to me specific things I need to be doing to change. What would he say to you? Well, it's not John the Baptist that will tell us. But the Spirit can. The wind can blow. I just hope we can avoid the axe. I hope we, we don't need the fan. I hope we're prepared for the kingdom of God because we're a part of it and we're helping build it so others can be a part of it too. Many other things. Yeah, I wish I had more. But let the Spirit fill in those blanks and exhort you personally with whatever it is that you need. By the time you finish this version of things, Luke then mentions John's imprisonment for calling out Herod's wickedness and immorality. That's looking ahead beyond what we're going to do today. We'll see all of it in a later lesson. And then Luke moves very quickly on to the baptism of Jesus himself. That's, that's it. That's the, the end of it, and we're back. And that's where Matthew had gone far more quickly and where Mark had gone quickest of all. I'm just grateful for that tangent that, look, that Luke took us on because it allowed us to learn so much. I pray, that's, again, that's probably the reason these lessons are so long, because I go on tangents left and right. Sorry, not sorry. They, part of it's my long-windedness, but part of it's not my wind, it's God's. Because there are times in the very moment as I'm teaching that I feel the wind blow and the Spirit pick up and the breath of God whisper in my heart and mind, 
things that had never crossed them before. I'm amazed by that. I do testify of the wind of God, of his breath, of his spirit. And if we'll simply bring forth fruit, meat for repentance, that fruit is full of seed that grows up into trees of life. So are we ready? Are we ready to actually see the baptism of Jesus? Because everything we've so, seen so far are the baptisms of others. And everything Mar Matthew, Mark, and Luke have taught us to this point is John the Baptist preparing the way, making ready a people prepared for the Lord. Are they prepared? Are we? Because now the Lord is coming. Go back to the book of Mark, where we started all of this, and look at verse 9 through 11, and we see Jesus finally here. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, if you remember in the John 1 account of this, we saw it briefly last week, the Spirit didn't just descend, it abode. It didn't just come, it remained. It's one thing to obtain the Spirit. It's another thing to maintain or retain the Spirit. And that's hard for us to do. Jesus did it perfectly. But here you see its initial descent. And if that's what you see, what do you hear? It's a great place to see every member of the Godhead separate and distinct from one another. With the Son in the water, the Father voice from heaven speaking to the Son, not just of Him. That's one of the great things about the Mark account also. He's not just saying, this is my beloved Son. This is a more, much more personal interaction between Father and Son. Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And meanwhile, the Spirit third member of the Godhead, descending like a dove to bear witness of the peace that the Prince of Peace would bring to everyone. The sign of the dove, you can look that up in the Bible dictionary, but to understand what this sign is meant to represent, we think of doves as a symbol of peace, and so it was. We think of doves as a symbol of new beginnings. Think about Noah on the ark. As the ark emerges or outlasts the flood, remains above it, but comes as it, it starts to approach its rest. What does Noah do? He sends out a dove. And the dove comes back with an olive leaf. All these symbols of peace and new beginnings. God is not angry at the world. He's offering the world a new beginning, a fresh start. Baptism sound like that? Was there a dove at yours, at your baptism? Indeed, there was. And it was God saying, be at peace concerning anything you've done in your past. It's a new day. And it is for all of us. Now jump to Luke chapter 3. And in verse 21 and 22, he gives his version of this story. He begins, now when all the people were baptized. So this is Jesus giving everyone else the opportunity to be baptized first. Sounds like him, always putting others before himself. But when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. 
and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. So again, it's personal, it's direct, just like the Mark account, even more so. It's not just in whom I'm well pleased, it's in thee I'm well pleased. I'm still talking to you, son, my beloved. But you also see the addition of Jesus praying at his own baptism. I love that, that Luke recalls that, that detail. He prays and the heaven is opened. Was it a prayer of gratitude? Was it a prayer of petition? I don't know. Definitely a prayer of connection. Jesus speaking to the Father and the Father speaking back to his beloved Son, to thee, in whom I'm well pleased. And meanwhile, the Holy Ghost descends in bodily shape like a dove. Now, that one's confusing. Is the bodily shape like a dove? Or was the descent of that bodily shape like a dove? The Spirit is not some kind of shapeshifter that's turning into a dove. But the Spirit in bodily shape, the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape. In, in 1 Nephi chapter 11, Nephi is having his own version of his father's dream. Remember this? And his first heavenly guide to understand the meaning of all the symbols is the Holy Ghost. And he sees the Holy Ghost, the personage of the Spirit, teaching him until the Spirit then allows an angel to take it from there. But to see a personage of Spirit, a member of the Godhead, and the heavens open as the Son prays, and the Father speaks, and the Holy Ghost descends. Can you imagine this? It's hard to tell who gets to see this. If it's just Jesus, or just Jesus and John, or was it Jesus and John and the people? Ah, it's hard to say. In the Mark version, it said that Jesus comes out of the water and he saw the heavens open. In Luke's version, it's unclear. We don't know it at all. But to understand the Spirit in, for who He really is. I think too often we use the word it when referring to the Holy Ghost. I would prefer we use the word He. And here He is descending in a bodily shape. It's gradual. It's peaceful. It's like a dove just slowly <laughs> gliding down to perch on its olive branch proclaiming peace. That's what the Holy Ghost does. Now, as soon as Luke has told us that, he then shifts gears considerably. We've seen Jesus baptized. That's enough for Luke. We're ready to move on. But Luke wants to give you genealogy, just like, Jesus, like Matthew did in chapter 1. So there's a genealogy of Jesus in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 3, right after the baptism. It's like his ministry's begun. You understand, Gentiles, how important this is? Okay, He's going to get it out to all of you. But where did Jesus come from? Let's talk about that. And he decides to insert the genealogy right there. We'll come back to it in just a moment, because it's interesting. But let's go to Matthew's version, because he pauses the narrative and extends it there. Luke really gives John the Baptist a greater voice. Uh, Matthew will give Jesus a greater voice. And it's a really fascinating scene once you, once you pan over to the Matthew version. Matthew 3, let's start this part of the story in verse 13. Then came Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. And thus begins Matthew's version of the actual baptism of Christ. But to talk about the journey first, interesting. Where's Jesus been? Oh, he's been up in, in Galilee. 
That's where, I mean, Nazareth, that's where he lives. And he's going to come down to Jordan. Now, why? To be baptized. Well, isn't baptism an immersion in water? Yeah. Well, what's Galilee known for? The Sea of Galilee? You got plenty of water there. You could save quite the trek. Just, it's right outside your door, basically. Go down and be baptized right there in Galilee. But no, he makes a journey that Matthew brings our attention to. And why? Two details. He goes from Galilee, number one, to Jordan. And number two, unto John. That's what we're doing here. So take each one of those. Unto John, yeah, because he's the personification of the Aaronic priesthood. The preparatory gospel. The gospel of repentance and of baptism. And so I have to go to an authorized servant of God. I'm seeking priesthood authority for my baptism. Not just deciding to do it on my own. Not just whatever's most convenient for me. No. I'm seeking true messengers. Authorized from heaven to bring me saving ordinances. So I'm going to John. And the other half, I'm going to Jordan. Why there? Some we've already seen. Because Jordan is where you, you cross the Rubicon in some ways. Remember that was, that was Caesar? So if I'm, am I really going to cross this? Because if I cross the Rubicon, this river, I'm coming into Rome uninvited and it's throwing down the gauntlet and telling people, I'm making a decision. I'm going to take over the government and there's no going back from here. I either become Hail Caesar or I'm hung for treason. I don't know if they hanged or whatever they did for, against, against traitors. Probably something worse knowing the Romans. The Jordan River becomes the Rubicon spiritually. Will you cross it? Will you come right here? Because that was the line of demarcation between the world and the promised land. We talked about Joshua. We talked about Caleb coming in. They crossed the Jordan to do it. And so did the people. To think about the Jordan River as the place where we swim upstream. Where the, we don't go with the flow because God dams the river and says, you're not going to go that way. The, we talked about this last year in the Old Testament. that the, the Jordan River, in some ways, was the threshold to the Promised Land. And so this is when the bridegroom picks up the bride and carries her across the threshold. If it's a watery one, she won't get her feet wet. How's that for crossing the Jordan? The Jordan River on the other side was where they brought 12 stones from the river and stacked it up as a memorial to the miracle of God. And so we're making a statement, one that we want to remember. You see why Jesus went to the Jordan? Because all of this is happening for him in his baptism. I could even add one more thing topographically. Because if you look at a topographic map, that's one with all the ups and all the downs, then the Jordan River is at the bottom of the Jordan Rift Valley. There's some tectonic plates. There's some earthquake possibilities. It is the lowest place on earth is that area because it's below sea level. What's amazing is if you were to draw, you know how rivers are supposed to flow to the sea? Because the rivers are on land, and they flow downhill until they meet the sea and reach sea level. So every river flows toward the sea, not the Jordan. 
That's why the, the, the one thing it does flow into is dead because there's no outlet. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth. And so the Jordan River is bringing fresh water from Galilee down to a sea that's only dead because it doesn't spread the wealth. It doesn't share it beyond. It just collects it all and then evaporates the water and what you're left with is just the silt and the sand and no wonder there's such a high sand concentrate or salt concentrate, I should say. If you were to drill a hole west underneath Israel and kept it completely level to go from the Jordan River. Yeah, we want to help it get to the sea. We're going to help this little river along. And so we're going to drill underneath and we'll make a tunnel. I kind of like Hezekiah is just a lot longer. And the water can then flow toward the Mediterranean. Well, guess what? The river wouldn't flow toward the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean would flow toward it because it's below sea level. Let me put it clearly then, topographically. What did Jesus do to be baptized? He descended below all things. Jesus picked the one spot on earth with the lowest fresh water. He didn't go to the Dead Sea. That's, that's just dead. That's, that's, that's descending too far. Though he even descended to the spirit world after his own crucifixion. But here, let me find the lowest place on earth where I can find fresh water and living water, flowing water, life-giving water, in which to be baptized. The Son of Man hath descended below all things. Art thou greater than he? We think of that in terms of trials. Can we think of that in terms of testimony and the testimony we bear when we're baptized? Jesus descended below them all. In fact, in 1 Nephi 11 that I talked about, I hinted at just a moment ago, when Nephi is asking, will you show me the tree of life? And the, and the Spirit says, sure, I can do that. And with angelic help, he paints a picture of Nazareth and shows him Christmas. And in the middle of it all, he says, do you understand the condescension of God? And Nephi's like, huh? Conda what? I was large in stature. Um, I, I was on the Jerusalem football team. I don't, I don't remember. I, I didn't think I took a class with words that big. So what do you mean by condescension? I know that he loves his children, but I, don't, I do not understand the meaning of all things. And the Spirit's like, oh, good enough. Uh, if you understand the love of God, that's what condescension is all about. But to help fill in the blanks, can we play some Pictionary? Can I depict condescension for you in two different ways? In case you miss one, maybe the other will help. The first picture, as he's playing Pictionary with Nephi, is Christmas. You want to see, I mean, I was, you want to see the tree of life. Well, here's the Virgin Mary bearing fruit. Fruit, meat for repentance, we just talked about. Uh, and the love of God is being made manifest. And so the father is sending his son through a mortal vessel in Mary. There's condescension for you. There is con with, descend, come down. God is willing to come down to be with us and bring forth an only begotten son. That son is willing to come down to be with us. And not only that, but to be like us. Wrapping our injured flesh around him. <laughs> the spirit wrapped in fleshly swaddling clothes. There's condescension for you. Are you getting it, Nephi? I think I am. Well, to make sure, can I show you one more scene? Turn the page. Here's another blank canvas. And the spirit then, or the angel then begins to paint this scene. The baptism of Jesus, in which Nephi then sees this prophet that was meant to prepare the way for the Lamb of God. That's a good shepherd for you. 
and then to baptize this Lamb of God and then to bear witness that this is the Lamb of God that came into the world. He'll recognize him because the Spirit will come and abide and stay and remain. What Nephi sees here is breathtaking as he watches the baptism unfold. But don't forget the context. What am I trying to depict for you? I'm trying to illustrate condescension. Huh. So the two examples that the, the angel gives of the condescension of Christ is Bethlehem and Jordan. It's Christmas Day and Baptism Day. I get how the, the birth is condescension. How about baptism? Well, think about it. First, he's, going, he's lowering himself as low as he possibly can there, geographically, in the Jordan River. But for a perfect being to do something that sinners do to clean up their act, ooh, there's condescension. Can you picture someone, wait, 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 wait. If I am seen entering the waters of baptism, they're going to assume I'm a sinner like everyone else. I mean, if you, if you see me walking into the bishop's office, are you going to just assume that I have some sin that I'm repenting of? Oh, far be it from me. That's, that's beneath me. No, nothing was beneath Jesus. He, did, he descended below it all. And so I will even be baptized like sinners are. Baptized unto repentance, I have nothing to repent of. But if baptism is something God asks all of his children to do, then I, as his only begotten son, of course I'll be baptized too. I love the geography. I should say, I love the theology of the geography of the baptism of Jesus Christ. And as if to emphasize the point that this is a different condescension, a different descent down to Jordan. He's not doing it because he's the lowest of the low and he's done horrible things and he needs to change. No, he's just willing to come down to be with us since that's where we belong. We, believe, we belong in the Dead Sea, let alone the Jordan. But he'll come down to be with us even though he doesn't have to? Wow. In fact, let me point this out. This blew me away once when I was really pouring over the, the passages in, in Matthew 3. Just look at Matthew's version and look at verse 1 and 2 and see how baptism and repentance are connected. In fact, every time you see baptism or repentance in Matthew chapter 3, see how they're connected. In verse 1 and 2, you meet John the Baptist, and what are his first words? Repent ye. Hmm. Okay, baptism and repentance right there in the person of John. Then look at verse 6, next time it's mentioned. They were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. It was a baptism of repentance after all, right? And so they're confessing, there's repentance, and are being baptized. They go hand in hand. Next, verse 7 and 8, see them together again. The people had come to his baptism, and what does he say to them? Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. This is not a spectator show. You didn't just come down, and we're not just dunking people. This is not a washing away. No, this is a scrubbing with the sponge of repentance, scour, the scouring pad, okay? Need some steel wool? Do whatever it takes to loosen up the wickedness within us so that then it can be washed away in the waters of baptism. But they have to go together. So, you came to the baptism. I hope you brought fruit for repentance. Next one, verse 11. He said, John the Baptist says, we just read this one, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. 
Once again, baptism and repentance hand in hand. But in verse 13, which we just read, this is the odd one out. Where it says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. And then this, this, the, it pauses. John interrupts Jesus. They have this conversation. He baptizes him anyway. And then the, the Spirit descends and God speaks. And everything that we've already come to expect from Mark's version and Luke's version. And John's from last week. But what's happening here in Matthew's account? It's the only time in Matthew 3 that baptism is mentioned without it being connected to repentance. And whose baptism is it referring to? Jesus's. It is Christ and Christ alone that lowered himself to our level without without getting leveled by the sin that we commit down here. It was Christ and Christ alone that wrapped our injured flesh around him, but wasn't injured by the experience, spiritually speaking. He never succumbed to sin. He didn't have to repent, but he came down to Jordan to take the step to which repentance leads. Talk about humility. I'm willing to share the same water. I used to joke when I was in the bishopric, and I was over the primary, so I got to go to every baptism. It was beautiful. I love little kids. And to see them take upon themselves the name of Christ is such... It cleansed my soul every time. But in places where there's lots of kids and, and big primaries and multiple baptisms on a, on a given day, I would sometimes joke with this, the, the kids of like, who's going to get baptized first? Because whoever goes in second is going to get stuck with the dirty water. I mean, if it washed away their sins, and is it still in there? Are there like floaties? Then we'd have some fun just talking about what really is, is cleansing them. Uh, but there's no, there's no floaties there. And yet, what is Jesus willing to do? Come down to Jordan where all our floaties are? And I'll enter the same water. In fact, I'll purify it. I'll exchange it for living water that will flow from me. It's Jesus that's doing it. It's not the Jordan River. It's Jesus that's changing us. It's his baptism is so different. It's so much like ours. He invites us to be baptized in the same way that he was baptized, but his was one of a kind because there was nothing to wash away. The only time in, in, in Matthew's account unassociated with repentance. Now I want to come back to those little children in baptism and so on in just a moment, but I want to pause here and, and wrestle with the thought, then why did Jesus have to do it? Why did Jesus have to be baptized if repentance was no part of it? John the Baptist was always John the crier of repentance first, and that, that means he's got no message for Jesus. And in his mind at least, if I can't tell you to repent, then why on earth would I invite you to be baptized? In fact, keep reading in the Matthew account. Matthew 3, verse 14 and 15. But John forbade him. And a better word for that is protested. Forbade suggests that John is like calling the shots. Like, no, I refuse. I, I absolutely will not. No, John is not calling the shots. He knows he can't. Far from it. I'm the unworthy one here. So I protest saying, 
I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Remember, I can't unlatch your shoes. How dare I lower you beneath me as I lower you into the water? I should be beneath you. You should be the one above putting me down because for forever I must remain beneath you. He must increase, I must decrease, John will say later. But again, that's the beauty of Jesus. Looking to John as a representative, not just of the Aaronic priesthood, but of humanity in general and saying, no, I'm going to go even lower than you. You put me down into the grave of, of water and bring me back up again. You push me down beneath the level of mere mortality. And on my way up, I'll bring all the rest of you up with me. I love John's humility here. But I love even more the Lord's response to that humility. Despite John's protest, Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now. In other words, please just let this happen. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. Okay. I, I understand where you're coming from. I understand what you're trying to do. So be it. I will lower you into the water. I pray someday you'll raise me in newness of life. That's what Jesus does. But notice how he said it. Thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. It's one of my favorite personal pronouns. Us. We saw some great personal pronouns a second ago about it, his wheat in his garner. Forget the chaff. There's no claim. But here's another beautiful one. Us? He could have, Jesus could have said to John, come on, John, I need to be baptized and I can't exactly do it by myself. Okay? So a little help, would you? I have to fulfill all righteousness. You're just playing a token part. No, instead, he brings John along. Brings him up to his level and says, John, you and I are about to fulfill all righteousness. Will you do it with me? Can we? Thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. That was one of the great things about being in Puerto Rico this past weekend for the temple dedication. Those were my missionary stomping grounds. And every step I took was in a... I get to see this, the footstep of the footprint of Jesus right in front of me. I got to follow him and try to do his work in his way. It was glorious. He let me join him in his work and glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. He said to me, basically, I know, Elder Halverson, that I can do a much better job on this mission than you can. Me without you is, is fine for the people. You without me, they've got no hope. But I don't want it to be either party without the other. So let's do this together. What do you say? What do you say that you and I go fulfill all righteousness in the mission field? And that's the same offer he makes for all of us. In every calling, in every act of service, he wants to work alongside us and share with us the experience. I love that he would say that. But I also love the phrase, to fulfill all righteousness. There's something about what Jesus is doing we are baptized for the remission of sins. Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. 
Hmm, what's the difference there? For this, our best guide is Nephi. The same Nephi that got to see the baptism of Jesus as an illustration of the condescension of Christ. Later, by the time he's ending his ministry and giving us his final exhortation, what does he do? He's not an activist, he's a disciple, and so he teaches the doctrine of Christ. Last message I can give you, 2 Nephi chapter 31. It's faith in Christ, it's baptism by, it's, excuse me, it's faith in Christ, it's, I'm getting ahead of myself, it's repentance of our sins, it's baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, and it's the gift of the Holy Ghost. And by the way, you better endure to the end, and the best way to do that is to feast upon the words of Christ. So keep studying your scriptures. Here we are, doing just that. Are you proud of us, Nephi? But if you think about what he's after, as he's teaching about the first principles and ordinances of the gospel to us, he uses Jesus as the ultimate example and explains in the process how Jesus fulfilled all righteousness in skipping over the step of repentance, he didn't need it, to get to the step of baptism. This is 2 Nephi chapter 31, verse 6 and 7, and then we'll jump to verse 9. And now I would ask of you, my beloved brethren, wherein the Lamb of God did fulfill all righteousness, same phrase, in being baptized by water. Know ye not that he was holy? He didn't have to descend that way. He didn't have to get his feet dirty at the banks of the Jordan River. But notwithstanding he being holy, Nephi says, he showeth unto the children of men that according to the flesh, I know spiritually I'm perfect, but I'm come down to be in the flesh and I'm going to do what people of the flesh have to do. I'm going to do this bodily and corporeally and physically and tangibly and visibly. According to the flesh, he humbleth himself before the Father and witnesseth unto the Father that he would be obedient unto him in keeping his commandments. You see that? He's doing this to set an example of humility and of obedience. And he's trying to make that humility and obedience visible, tangible, corporeal. He wants us to see it. He's witnessing to the Father and to the rest of us. This is what humility and obedience look like. And then Nephi adds this in verse 9. And again, it showeth unto the children of men the straightness of the path, the narrowness of the gate by which they should enter, he having set the example before them. Christ's baptism was meant to show the Father a few things, but it was also meant to show the rest of us a few things. And one of those was just how straight and just how narrow this place, this path is. The Jordan River isn't that wide, if you're used to things like the Mississippi or the Nile or the Amazon. It's a narrow way. Will you come and meet me there and stay within its banks? I think too often it's people that feel like they're above such commands that they don't want to learn strict obedience. They don't want to settle for the narrowness of the way. They don't want to descend to that river. This is like Naaman, the Syrian, remember with Elisha? It's like, Jordan River, are you kidding me? Why do I have to go to there to come clean? The rivers of Syria are way better than that one. I've got superior sources of water. Naaman, will you just humble yourself? You see, I guess Naaman's another great person to come to the baptism of Jesus and say, I have some insight about Jordan, the Jordan River as well. Can I share? Well, he just did. Humble yourself. Be completely immersed. That's why I had to do it seven times. Because seven is totality and completeness, wholeness. And I came out completely whole. 
but I had to humble myself to do it the Lord's way. And the Lord had to humble himself to do it the Father's way. Pretty good example. It's been set, now it just needs to be followed. That's not to say that there's no flexibility. That's not to say that the Lord doesn't give us some wiggle room and some opportunities to improvise. That's what agency is for. But the order has to be clear. We have to master the iron rod before we are given a chance to be led by a liahona. We have to learn strict obedience before we are mature enough to handle the flexibility. We have to master the letter of the law before the spirit of the law can tell us we need to do things this way in this situation. Okay? The narrowness of the way, that's Christ's example to us all. Now, he goes on, Nephi does, in this magnificent chapter, inviting us to follow that example. He, and this, in some ways, might be another version of, thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, in John's case, will you baptize me? In our case, will you be baptized like me? And there we can fulfill all righteousness together as well. So 2 Nephi 31, verse 5, now, if the, if the Lamb of God, he being holy, should have need to be baptized by water to fulfill all righteousness, oh, oh then, how much more need have we, being unholy, to be baptized, yea, even by water? I mean, I can see Jesus, if he were any less humble than he is, protesting, like John did. John, you shouldn't have to do this. Jesus could have said, Father, I shouldn't have to do this. You're right. But we have no leg to stand on. If we're trying to make similar claims, we need to fulfill, fulfill our righteousness, and this is how we do it. And then the way Nephi sums it up in verse 13 of 2 Nephi 31, it's one of my favorite verses about baptism, because to me it explains the whole thing in a single verse. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, so wherefore, after I've explained all of this the last few verses, I know that if ye shall follow the Son, so do it just like he did, if you will follow the Son with pur full purpose of heart, so if you'll do it like you mean it, if acting no hypocrisy and no deception before God, so make sure this is truly sincere. If you'll do it with real intent, you're not just going through the motions. Repenting of your sins, and that's the ultimate prerequisite. That's the one step Jesus could skip, but we can't. Repenting of your sins, witnessing unto the Father, showing him, making it visible, just like Jesus did, that ye are willing to take upon you the name of Christ by baptism. Yea, by following your Lord and your Savior down into the water, according to his word. Doing it his way, that is. Behold, if you'll do all that. That first part of the verse was all about our side of things. What about this? What about this? What about that? Are you, are you meeting all of these requirements? If so, then here's the result. Behold, then shall ye receive the Holy Ghost. Yea, then cometh the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. And that's where this Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John all, all end their story. But Nephi adds one more detail. Two, actually. And then can ye speak with the tongue of angels. You're finally worthy to do so. You can speak. In other words, you have breath to breathe you have wind coming out of your lungs. You're inspiring words because God has given you that breath, that spirit. And what are you going to do with it? 
now that you can speak with the tongue of angels. Nephi's last line here. And shout praises unto the Holy One of Israel. After all, that's what angels do. That, to me, is the greatest explanation of baptism of all time. All our parts, our sincerity, our real intent, our efforts to witness, to show our full purpose, and, and it's following Jesus. Our baptism is following Christ into the water. I want to get into whatever water he was just in. <laughs> if he was the last one baptized there on the Jordan and everybody else's sins are floating on the top, just kind of scum at the surface. Metaphorically, I'm just symbolizing things. Oh, Jesus, I can go in. It's not going to get me dirty. I'm going to make it clean. There's only one direction of contagion here. It's not them to me. It's me to them. So I'll come and, and change it all. Filthy water becomes crystal clear. It becomes living water. So follow me down into it. According to my word, you'll find fire on the banks when you get back out. Glorious. Now, I do want to give one last caution, though, because if you read 2 Nephi 31, verse 13, as a list of boxes to check, was it there? Was it there? Was it check, 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 I'm ready to be baptized. Uh, well, if it's no hypocrisy and no deception, if it's full purpose of heart and real intent, then hopefully you've been weaned off the box checking already. Because... If, if it's a list of to-dos to get to baptism, then I'm afraid that your baptism is just going to be a to-do list item for you also. And it's just going to be another box to check. And it's not. I've got evangelical friends that sometimes worry that Latter-day Saints are guilty of works righteousness and we have all kinds of boxes to check and that's what earns our salvation. That's not what we believe. At least not what we should believe. Baptism... Is that a work? Is it earning our salvation? No, but it is something God commands us to participate in in order to fulfill all righteousness. We'll see more of that in two weeks when Jesus meets Nicodemus and really starts talking about how essential baptism is. But we cannot afford to allow baptism to become a mere to-do list item. It can't be a box to check. It can't be a mere rite of passage for eight-year-olds eight or just some kind of no, initiation that happens when somebody decides to join the church. No, baptism has to be more than that. It has to be covenantal. It has to be experiential. And it has to be relational. Because I'm following Jesus into the water. That's a relationship. I'm showing, making it visible that I want to be just like him. Splash around in the same water source. In fact, immerse myself in that same living water. I want to go down like me and come up like him. I want it to be different. That's experiential. That's relational. And covenantal, this is my, my Rubicon. I'm crossing it. I'm crossing the Jordan and I'll, I'll never be the same. That's the covenant I made when I was eight. And though I didn't know fully do any of us, even now, know fully? I did know enough. And my baptism meant everything to me. In my journal, I talked about 
The water was a little cold, but I felt warm inside. I remember it vividly because I looked up after my baptism and there was my, high, my, my uh, home teacher sadly looking down at me, shake, shaking his head, going, it didn't count. Your foot came up. Okay. Dad did the prayer again and lowered me in. And I looked up, forget my home teacher. This time I'm looking at my primary teacher, the other witness. And instead of a beaming smile, which I expected, again, it was this sad kind of pained look and a shake of the head and, no, your feet came up again. I was getting desperate. I'm like, Dad, get, get it together. I'm the second child. You did this right with Kristen. What about me? <laughs> that third time then he lowered me. I don't know if he step, stepped on my feet to make sure they wouldn't float to the surface again, but he lowered me and I was all under and brought me back up. At the time, I was a little embarrassed that it took three times. The third time was the charm. Ever since, I've been grateful because I learned the hard way that if you're not all under and all in, then it doesn't count. And if our baptism has to be by immersion, shouldn't the conversion and lifetime of discipleship that follows it, shouldn't that be just as deep? You get what I'm saying here? This was not a spring clean of spirituality. This was complete submersion into the Spirit. This was immersion into the life of Christ and our discipleship better be deep. All the way in. That's covenant. That's relationship. That's new birth, rebirth. That's new name, the son's name. That's new family, the family of faith. It's new family resemblance, taking his image in our countenance. Having it engraven there. Like I said, when I was in the bishopric and got to speak at all the children's baptisms, I loved it. Uh, poor uh, primary presidency that had to, had to hear me over and over, month after month, giving very similar talks. But often I would say to the kids, guess what? Guess what gift you get today? And they said, the Holy Ghost. I'm like, yes, definitely. But guess what else you get? You get a new family. You get a new set of parents today. And they're like looking at their parents like, what? But I love mine. I'm like, no, an additional one. Okay? You get to keep them too. But you have a new mom and dad to add to the ones that you already have. And your father, in this case, is Jesus. Because he's the father of the covenant. Today he hath spiritually begotten you. That's Mosiah 5 verse 7. He's the father of your covenant. And who's the mother then? Who's Christ's wife? Well, husbands love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Ah, I get it. If Christ is the father of my covenant, the church is the mother of my covenant. And I said, welcome to the family. I'm part of your mom. That poor eight-year-old is trying to make sense of me. <laughs> but as I tried to explain it, Jesus wants to provide and preside and protect every step of your journey. And the church, as your mother, here we are collectively surrounding you. We're here to nurture your faith. Because I know we're, you're young, you're eight, but we're here to help. And so I hope you look to Jesus as a father figure and the church as a, a nurturing mother. We're ready to be nursing fathers and nursing mothers and carry you on our shoulders and lift you in our arms and bring you to Zion. That's what it's for. Happy baptism. The other thing I would sometimes tell them, <laughs> if, if, if we got past the idea of floaties in the water, if there were multiple baptisms that day, 
I would, I would sometimes ask, um, so do you want really hot water to burn away the sin or really cold water to freeze it off you? And then we can kind of chip it away. And they're like, huh? I'm like, just kidding, just kidding. It's, it's nice and warm. It's fine. Sometimes I would say to them, hey, do you know what we put in the water to, to get you clean? And they're all, huh? So think about it. What do you put in the dishwasher for so that the dishwasher will clean away all the food and grease and stuff on the plates and they're like well there's those little packets or there's the the dishwasher detergent i'm like okay great yeah and it's some strong stuff right concentrate Ooh, what about uh the washing machine you put in this dirty clothing what do you put in that to wash away the stains from your clothes and they're like well there's laundry detergent i'm like good you're good okay you got this but that's stuff on the outside how do you get something to go in and, and cleanse the soul? What do you think? And you see these little eight-year-old wheels turning like, wow, yeah, what, what do you put in the water? I would even tell stories about my dad. My dad uh, got, a, major, got a, a chemistry degree in college and actually went on to get a master's degree in chemistry. Uh, I never saw him use any of his chemistry knowledge except when he was like checking the pH balance in the pool uh, to see if we had enough chlorine. I'm like, how's that master's paying off for you, Dad? But I would talk to my, these little eight-year-olds about the, you know, chlorine in the pool and detergent in the dishwasher and the, lawn and the washing machine and it's washing, it's cleansing, it's purifying. But what about your soul? When your heart gets dirty, what could possibly clean that? And I'd say to him, you know what we put in the water? In the baptismal font. You know what kind of chemistry goes on in there? So that when you're fully immersed in the water, you come forth and your soul is completely spotless clean. And they're like, what do you do? How do you do that? What's the, what, what's the chemicals? What's the and I just look at them and go, nothing. Well, no, it's just regular tap water. We got, we got nothing. And then with a sense of disappointment, like, wait, it's just regular old water? Then it was my chance to clarify for them. It's not chemistry we're doing here. It's theology. It's not the water that washes you. Only Christ can cleanse. This is our chance to witness, to act something out, to make visible that we are willing to lower ourselves and bury the natural man, have it swallowed up in the grave, the watery grave, and then bring you forth like a new resurrection into a new family, a newness of life. Happy birthday, you sweet little eight-year-old. You're coming unto Christ, and it's Christ that is cleansing you. It actually clarifies something about fulfilling all righteousness. I said earlier that it's only Christ that didn't have to be forgiven for the, excuse me, that didn't have to be baptized by immersion for the remission of sins. His was baptism by immersion for the fulfillment of all righteousness. But if you think about it, what sins does an eight-year-old need to have remitted? That's a head-scratcher too. Any of you converts to the church that got baptized after eight, yeah, you had some obvious sins that needed washing, okay? So when, when you talk to anyone else, yeah, it, there was the remission of sins, and there, there would have been a lot of floaties out of the water after that, okay? Because there was plenty of things in my past that needed to be 
purified. But an eight-year-old, nothing they do counts against them because those are years of unaccountability. So I've asked this of, of this is way over the head of an eight-year-old. So I've asked their families sometimes, especially those that I can sense are, are struggling spiritually. Every chance I got to have to teach at a or speak at a baptism was a call to come back to the water for anyone that had wandered away from the Jordan. And so I would say to the family members, this child is still being baptized for the remission of sins. But it's not the sins they've already committed because they haven't committed any. At least none that count against them in those unaccountable years. They are being baptized for the remission of sins to come. It's not past transgressions that, be, that are being pardoned. It's future sins that will be forgiven. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not some kind of permanent amnesty. We're not covering them with some kind of spiritual Teflon that then no sins, no stains will ever attach. No, they're going to commit plenty of sins throughout their life. That's, that's the problem. But it's a problem that has a solution in baptism. Not in the water in the font, but in the covenant and relationship that is being forged here. In this moment, as this child is taking upon themselves the name of Christ, in a commi committed, covenantal, permanent relationship, what are they saying? I want to follow you. Not just into the waters of baptism, but once we get out to the other side. I want to follow you around Jerusalem and Galilee. I want to follow you wherever you lead me. I know sometimes I'll take, I'll, I'll, there'll be missteps and trips and stumbles and falls and my white baptismal clothing will become stained with sin. But I want to keep following you. And what's the Lord say in return? Then come, follow me. And I promise every time you fall, I'll pick you back up. That's what I do. Remember Simeon's words, he's set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. He's ready for it. He expected it. He knew it would be that way. That's why he came. But in a covenant relationship, what do you do? You forgive each other. My wife and I find ourselves doing that for each other often. I'm sorry, honey, that I have to ask for your forgiveness so frequently, but I'm grateful that you're committed to a relationship where repentance is allowed. And forgiveness is assured. When we were sealed in the San Diego Temple in 1999, we made a promise that through thick and thin, we're in this thing together. And we've had some thick and we've had some thin. But that's the promise we all made to Jesus when we were sealed to him. Marriage, baptism, it all comes, it's all the same. <laughs> we're part of it. And it's for the remission of sins to come that I've entered a relationship where the Lord says, I'll take care of that too. Just stick with me. I'll wash that away again. Just don't leave. That's why we take the sacrament so frequently. It's a renewal of our vows. We're getting remarried to our same covenant companion, our same spiritual spouse, and to, to promise and to do our best to keep the relationship intact despite our stumbles. Yes, you eight-year-old.
you were baptized for the remission of sins. And as you maintain your marriage to Christ, as you keep your covenant with him, he'll keep washing you every time you need it. I, for one, am endlessly grateful for that. And so is the Father in an interesting way because he wants to bring us all home. We're all his beloved sons and daughters. He wants to be well pleased with us all. He wants to send his spirit gently like a dove as his extension of the olive branch. No hard feelings. I love you. I sent my son to bring you back. No wonder Matthew then gives us this that we're used to, having seen it in Mark and in Luke and in John. Matthew 3, 16 to 17. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. There's immersion for you. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. Were they opened unto anyone else? We don't know. They were to John. John 1 tells us that. But uh, is it, this is a, a personal, private manifestation. And he... Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Baptism is a gift God gives us because we're beloved of him. And accepting that gift is a gift that we give back to him because we love him and know that this is something that pleases him well. And that's the end of Matthew 3. That's it. We've crossed the Rubicon. Jesus is ready to go. Uh, it's, now, it's on to Jerusalem. It's on to Judea. It's on to Galilee. Well, I guess there is still a little bit of wilderness between, between Jordan and Jerusalem that he'll have to pass. And we'll see some temptations next week along the way. I'm, I love that lesson. The temptations of Christ teach us so much. So I hope you'll tune in again. But what we're seeing here is Matthew 3 ends. Jesus has been baptized. What, what more do you need? The Father has spoken. The Spirit has descended. And let's move on with, with the ministry. But that's not the only account we have. We don't have to move forward quite so quickly. And I'm grateful. I want to savor the experience. Okay, Linger in the moment. So if we go back to Mark's account... Right after the baptism narrative, which we've already studied, we're now in Mark chapter 1, verse 12 to 13. Notice what he says next. And immediately, that was one of the 42 times or whatever the number was, that he says it. It's like, we're, we're on to the next, okay? We're quickly going from scene to scene. Immediately, the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. And that's like the sum total of what Mark gives us about the temptations, which we'll spend all next week on. But he's on. He's, he's moving. And he'll give us that, two verses on it. And then can we talk about something else? Uh, immediately, immediately, immediately. That's actually really helpful for us to know. That even after our baptism, and such a beautiful moment, and the peace that descends upon us like a dove, well, brace yourself, because immediately thereafter, here come the temptations. Here comes the, the, some more trials in the wilderness. Because we haven't quite arrived, even though we've decided to continue our journey. No, there's more to come. There's also more in terms of what we have in Scripture in the Luke account. So if we can turn there to kind of wrap up this lesson and at least see what he gives us, then I think we'll be ready for next week and our dive into the temptations of Christ. For this, 
Luke has finished the baptism of Jesus. His next story, this is Luke 3, his next chapter, Luke 4, is the temptations of Christ also. So it's paralleling the Matthew version. But he pauses right in this moment to give us the genealogy of Jesus. And it can be confusing because he doesn't just give it, give it to us at a different time than Matthew did. I'll do it after baptism. You did it at the first. Fine. He, does it, he gives us a different genealogy. And that can be really confusing. If you look at Luke chapter 3, verse 23 to 24, he begins with Jesus and works his way back. Matthew began with Abraham and worked his way forward. But in this version, Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. That's where we can mark the beginning of his public ministry. So he's about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. And then the genealogy picks up from there. The son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli, which was the son of Mathat, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of Melchi, which was the son of Janna, which was the son of Joseph, and on and on and on and on. It's a long genealogy in Luke. In fact, much longer than the genealogy we saw in, in Matthew. And not just because he goes further back in time. There's a lot more links in the chain between them, which is odd. And even odder is that the links don't always match, which has left people scratching their head. It's left skeptics kind of cackling and kicking their heels in the air going, ha-ha, see, that Matthew and Luke don't agree with each other, so it's all false and made up. Well, okay, skeptics, say what you will. But what is Luke trying to accomplish here, as opposed to what was Matthew trying to accomplish in, in his version? Now, notice one detail first. When it speaks of Jesus being the son of Joseph, notice the parenthetical insertion, as was supposed, which suggests that, hey, people didn't know any, any different, whether they wondered if this was an illegitimate child or whether uh, an early honeymoon baby, eh, we'll see. But this is Joseph's kid. We'll see that next week in Luke chapter uh, 3 and 4, excuse me, 4 and 5, as, when the people of Nazareth are scratching their head going, this is Joseph's kid. Well, yeah, as was supposed, and for 30 years, it was okay to assume that. But 12-year-old Jesus, as we saw last week, he knew better. <laughs> Love you, Joseph. Not my dad. I'm about my capital F father's business. No, just supposed. There's no literal link between, between Jesus and Joseph. Which has caused some people to wonder, well, maybe that explains the difference. If we're looking for literal links, then we've got to go through Mary. So Mary's genealogy is the one that really matters. True. And some have wondered, is Matthew giving us Joseph's genealogy and Luke is giving us Mary's genealogy? Traditionally, through much of Christian history, that's been the explanation. And it's possible, but the tricky part here is that he, he, Luke does say it's the supposed son of Joseph who was the son of Heli and blah, 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 blah. So we're... Mm, now, some have pushed back and said, okay, fine, but let's maybe, just maybe, Mary's father didn't have any sons. So who's he going to pass down the inheritance to? Well, Joseph, obviously. So when Joseph marries my daughter, he becomes my adopted son. So for all intents and purposes, I'm his dad. And you can trace Joseph's genealogy straight through Mary because he's now part of the family, part of the family. Okay, it's a possibility. Uh, so is this just adoption and it's still Mary's lineage, even though it says Joseph was the son of Heli? 
possible. Another possibility, uh, because here's where it gets really hard. In the Matthew version, who's Joseph's dad? It says that Joseph was the son of Jacob, the son of Mathan, the son of Eliezer. Whereas the Luke version we just read, uh, no, he's the son of Heli, the son of Mathat. Oh, is that Mathan? Just different spelling? Uh, no, because then it's what, Eliezer and Levi? Those don't sound at all alike. Again, if you're pouring over them and putting the two lines side by side, the lengths are different and the, num the names are different and the number of links in the chain, it's like, what do we do? No wonder we just try to simplify and go, mm, Joseph's genealogy, Mary's genealogy, keep them diff different. Again, it's a possibility. But another possibility that some have suggested is, no, this really is Joseph's genealogy in both cases. Then why the difference? And some have suggested, well, maybe there was a law of leveret marriage in there. Maybe you could, in a way, give Joseph two different family lines if his literal father was different from his father as far as Jewish inheritance lineage was concerned. If leveret marriage comes in and the father, again, this is tricky, it's like you have to really piece together a lot of possibilities here where it's two different lines coming together uh, and almost like paternal grandfather versus maternal grandfather. And I've got two different lines there, but if we're tying it together through leveret marriage, it's really confusing. Okay, it's one that would require an explanation far beyond what, what even we on Unshaken have time for. Okay, but there's things you can read online and so on with, that try to map it all out. The other possibility, and this is the one that I'm most comfortable with, because it seems to be closest to the, to what the texts that we have, and and the simplest explanation of them all. Matthew was less concerned about strict chronology than Luke was. Luke is the careful historian talking about who's in charge and in Rome and different tetrarchies and, and all these. Luke was careful. Matthew was, well, Luke was a Gentile. It was more kind of Greek philosophy infused. It's got to be correct. Luke, Matthew was a Jew. With all of their love of symbolism and metaphor and, and the non-literal, and so when Matthew gives us three sets of 14 links in the chain so to keep the Davidic dynasty symbolism alive, like we studied when, in Matthew 1, he had to be creative with some of the chronology and skip a generation here and there to keep the 14. That was okay. Son of can also mean descendant of in Greek and in Hebrew. So it's not like he's lying. But to keep the 14, my goal is to, to clarify Davidic dynasty. And what was the focal point in Matthew's genealogy? It was the kingly line. That was not Luke's concern. For Luke's audience, a bunch of Gentiles, they don't care about the Jewish kingdom. They don't care about the Davidic dynasty and the lion coming down. No, where did this Jesus come from? Oh, he came from just regular people. Uh, an artisan, a stonemason, a carpenter in... in Nazareth, a, a wife, just simple, humble, handmaid of the Lord. Follow Joseph's line. If you're both cultures, Jewish and Gentile, cared more about the fathers, unfortunately, than the mothers. It was a male patriarchy. It was that was the descendants, the, the lineage that you followed. I would see Luke then being as literal as possible, a biological genealogy, 
in Luke chapter 3. Whereas Matthew, this is a political genealogy, more than a biological one. Jesus is the king of kings. And this is the kingly line that he taps into. This is the Davidic dynasty, a shoot, a branch growing out of the stump of Jesse. Just trust. There's a connection here. But even more than that, what I love about the differences between Matthew and Luke's genealogy is what, their, what the original source was in their minds. Because, like I said, it's very different. You go, there's a connection between, you can put it this way, look for the common links in the chain, and you'll see two different chains coming together at certain points. So they both are there at Joseph, who it was supposed was Jesus' father. They connect back through two different lines back to Zerubbabel. So that both sides would like, oh yeah, you're Zerubbabel, oh yeah, me too, okay? Uh, but different lines along the, the, as they separate out. Uh, genealogists out there probably can understand this even, or explain it even better than me, uh, far better than me, because there's, we can have multiple ancestors or common ancestors with multiple ways to get there, okay? Oh, what a tangled web we weave as we marry and intermarry, okay? So Zerubbabel was a common ancestor. King David was a common ancestor, although the links, the, the chains separate between the two as well. The Matthew version goes down from King David to King Solomon, whereas the Luke version goes down from David through a son named Nathan, probably named after the prophet Nathan that David had some good days with and some not so good days with, right? Um, but what's interesting is once you're at David, now, okay, we're good. And David go, is traced back to Abraham, and it's the same links in the chain all the way through. So both Matthew and Luke would agree, oh yeah, Abraham to David, we're, we're on the same page. But as Matthew works forward to Jesus, he starts with Abraham. It's the first link in the chain that a Jewish audience is going to care about. Because any Jew can fill in the blanks from Adam down to Abraham. They know that inside and out. Whereas a Gentile audience, they, Abraham who? I've heard about that. It's really important to the Jewish people, right? But here's what I absolutely love about Luke's genealogy. Start in verse 36 and go to 38. He mentioned Abraham. He's gone back a bunch of links until he gets to this part that should be familiar to us. 36. Which was the son of Canaan, which was the son of Arphaxad, now, those two we don't know as well, but the next we do. Which was the son of Sem. Now, that Sem is Shem, as we know him from the Old Testament. Which was the son of No, and that's Noah, as we know from the Old Testament. Which was the son of Lamech, which was the son of Methuselah. Are these names starting to ring some bells? Which was the son of Enoch. That one better ring a bell. Which was the son of Jared, which was the son of Malaleel. In our Bible, it's Mahalaleel, same thing which was the son of Canaan, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam. Now, in true Lucan fashion, <laughs> Jesus doesn't just go back to Abraham, making him the king of the Jews. No, he goes all the way back to Adam, making him the Lord of all humanity. You see what he's doing here? All you Gentiles, all you that are, <laughs> you stones outside the riverbed of Israel, those stones that God can raise up to be seed unto Abraham, well, you're already seed of Adam. 
And as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. All, every Gentile. Anyone that cannot trace their genealogy through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you can trace your genealogy through Adam and Eve. And Jesus is every bit as related to you as to anyone in the house of Israel that claims the Jewishness of Jesus. You get it? In fact, if you're still unsure, let Luke give one more link to the chain. And this one I absolutely love. Because after he's traced it back to Adam, he's not done yet. The son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. So Luke is not only connecting us to Jesus through Adam, he's connecting us to Jesus through God himself. He is honoring both humanity as well as divinity. And Jesus is the perfect mixing of the two. It's amazing what he's doing. We're children of God. We all are. And so Christ came for you. He's here to save the whole family. Well, Luke then turns to the temptations in chapter 4, which we'll see next week, just like Matthew does. The rest of Mark, meanwhile, picks up in, with the baptism of Jesus, two verses on the, the temptations of Jesus, and then it is full speed ahead, immediately after immediately, as the scenes fly before us. The rest of Mark chapter 1 packs in story after story. I won't teach them here because we'll teach them later. We'll let Mark 1 be brought back to add a few flavors to when we, when we see the story explained more fully in Matthew or in Luke. Okay? So hold out for that. But if I can give you the preview of coming attractions, here's the rest of Mark chapter 1. After the temptations, Jesus preaches the gospel. He calls Simon and Andrew and James and John as fishers of men. We got, saw that last week in John chapter 1. We'll see it uh, next week in, in Matthew and Luke. Jesus teaches by authority. He casts out unclean spirits. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. I mean, by now, we're in Matthew chapter 8, but we're here. We're still only in Mark chapter 1. See how fast he's trying to move the narrative? Mark talks about Jesus healing the sick and casting out devils. He describes the healing of the leper. And with that, we finally get to the end of Mark chapter 1. And again, there's a preview of coming attractions. Uh, you, if I whet your appetite to keep turning pages and studying. Like I said, we'll st discuss each of these stories at length when we get to them in the other Synoptic Gospels. But if I could conclude where we started and just give you one last thought about baptism, since that's the meat of the message for this week. Baptism is the first of the ordinances of the Gospel just like faith was the first principle of the gospel. Receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost is the second ordinance of the gospel, and repentance is the second principle of the gospel. That's why in the fourth article of faith, we believe the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are, and then we list them. Now, I've taught this before, but I want to be able to say it again here as we, as we conclude our discussion of baptism. Because we saw faith in Christ in, in John the Baptist, 
in others that were coming to him, they had faith in something better. They had faith they could be cleansed of their sin. They had faith and an expectation of consolation in Israel. They repented, and John the Baptist made sure of it, because he cried repentance to every, every viper in the nest. And then they were baptized for the remission of sins, with the promise that he of, that was mightier than John would come to baptize with fire and the Holy Ghost. There's the fourth article of faith, right? It's all right here in what we've studied. But as I have asked my students over the years, for the five most important words in the fourth article of faith, their answers are usually either this or that. Number one, faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost. That's five words, and that's what the fourth article of faith is all about. I'm like, ooh, that's good, that's good. Uh, but I wasn't asking for a summary of the passage. I was asking for the five most important words. Others, the second option they always come up with is first principles and ordinances gospel. I'm like, great, another beautiful summary. But I'm looking for significance, not summary. What are the five most important words? And I love it when it finally dawns on, them, dawns on them that the five most important words in the doctrine of Christ, in the fourth article of faith, are these. In the Lord Jesus Christ. As in faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the most important ones because those are the ones that make all the difference. Because there is no difference in the others, no matter who you are. And this was the eye-opener for me. Everyone on earth believes and follows the fourth article of faith. They all begin with faith and move to repentance, end up being baptized and receiving the Holy Ghost. Wait, huh? Hold, wait, wait for it, okay? The difference is, what do they place their faith in? Because that will determine the trajectory and path they will follow through the rest of the fourth article of faith. Now let me explain what I mean. Everyone starts with faith in something. And if your five words aren't in the Lord Jesus Christ, then your faith will simply be in something else, far inferior to him. Some have faith in other religions, fine. Some have faith in no religion at all, but they have faith in themselves, or they have faith in the government, and politics is what matters to them. They have faith in, in the economy, and economics is what matters. Or they have faith in their income, and what money can buy. They have, faith is simply your central organizing principle that you think matters most in life. I often call them isms. And isms can count for religions, obviously, but there's other isms, political isms. There's sports fanaticisms. There's consumerism and commercialism, and everybody's got an ism. It's what matters most to you. What does your life seem to revolve around? Some are better, some are worse. But the best of all is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's say I pick something else, though, and I have faith in that. That's what's going to bring me happiness. That's what's going to bring me joy and meaning and fulfillment. Fine, then what are you going to do next? Automatically. Faith is always unto repentance. If I believe that's the most important thing, what will I do? I'll change my behavior. I'll turn. That's what repentance is. I'll turn toward that thing with full purpose of heart. I just want to do that all the time. I love it. It's what consumes me. Oh, it's what you're immersed in? Hmm, now we're at baptism. 
I had faith in that central kind of, what do I put in pole position, that central organizing principle. My, I've led my life to fall into place with that, changing behaviors, that's repentance, to make it first and foremost. In fact, I'm so immersed in it and so committed to it. I'm all in into that lifestyle. It's what matters most. It's what brings me happiness and meaning. And then, what's the gift of the Holy Ghost, huh? No, it's just confirmation. As in, I'm seeking confirmation that what I am immersed in and what I gave my life to was the best object of faith I could have focused on. Please confirm that. And I'll join other groups that feel the same confirmation. I'll look for confirmation bias. They'll offer it to me. I'm immersed in this whole world, after all. And we're all members of this same ism. Until we're not. Because the fourth article of faith actually moves in both directions. You start with faith and end with confirmation. But if something ends up happening and you feel less confirmed in that, you start to wonder, you start to second guess your choice. It's like, I don't know, there's other things out there. And maybe this isn't the source of all goodness in the world or for me. And as our confirmation starts to wane, what does that do to our commitment? If our baptism by fire seems to grow cold, then our baptism by water seems to dry up right along with it. I'm no longer immersed in it. I'm no longer committed to it. And my behaviors then start to go in different directions until I've really second-guessed, why did I pick that as first and foremost in my life? And we kind of lose interest in it. Only to have something else pop into its place. Because we as human beings can't function without something in pole position. Some new object of faith that then leads to changes of behavior and commitment to that lifestyle and, and confirmation that what we picked again was better than the first. Until that one goes and then it comes back. You understand what I'm doing? Life is just moving down and up and down and up across the fourth article of faith. What mattered was what you put your faith in. I testify that it is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that makes all the difference. That's the faith that John the Baptist had and proclaimed the Lamb of God. It's the faith of a Peter or an Andrew or a James or a John. It's the faith of a Mary or a Joseph or an Elizabeth or a Zechariah. It's the faith of you and me on our best days. I testify that that faith will lead to repentance. There's no way around it if we truly believe. And that repentance unto baptism will immerse us in a life of continual change. Eternal progression, it's already begun. We're enjoying it as we speak. I testify of those things because they have been confirmed to me by the power of the Holy Ghost as it has burned away lesser allegiances and left a path in the sand as I follow that fire across the Jordan into the Promised Land. This is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. These are its first principles and ordinances. This is His doctrine. The doctrine of Him who taught it, exemplified it, and then said to each of us, Follow me.